Hello, hello, hello. We're getting my camera is that fixed. You, I guess. Derek Rose? That is me. What's up? Welcome to the Greater Reset right. Activation. Hey John, I'll let you take it for for a moment. Well, look look at how they're set up over here. This is in Buda, Buda, Texas, Central Texas. They're out here chilling. You're gonna see us here in Z1 in just a minute. Just want to say thanks to everybody who's coming back. We see some familiar faces. We also see lots of new faces, and we have lots of new speakers. Lots lots going on. This is our second event. Anybody here was here in January? Who was here in January last time? Who watched on in January? Anybody just, just heard about this in the last couple months? Seems like we're getting a lot of new people. Cool. You there, John? Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear us? And see there you. There we go. Cool. We can hear and see. And we got Ramiro here, too. Give it up for Ramiro. This is the man building the website, doing a lot of the design work, graphics. And, and he's got a whole, whole team of people behind him. All right. Well, today's the big day, starting it all off. I want to thank uh, Ramiro and Derek and everyone that has helped to make this possible. I also want to shout out the local volunteers and Rita, and we're super excited to have this opportunity to present to the world. This is being live streamed globally, and this time around, we managed to get translations for six different languages, what I think is really cool. It's most definitely a global, a global movement. It is the greater reset. So this is the people's response to the great reset, the World Economic Forum's technocratic control agenda. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, we're going to talk a little bit about the problem, but really what sets us apart from a lot of other conferences and festivals and, and content out there is the entire focus is on solutions and activation. That's right. So the first time around, we called it the Greater Reset Activation, because, again, it's all about getting activated. This time around, we want to call it the Expansion, Activation to Expansion. Hey, Derek, you want to tell us about the expansion component of this this, uh, this time around? Sorry, John, if we cut you off there, I think there's, there might be a delay between us. But we're just making noise over here, trying to make sure you guys in Texas know you're not the only ones celebrating and ready for the next activation. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me now? Do you want to tell us about the expansion component? Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about that before I do that. I know Ramiro wanted to share a couple of words. Okay. Well, you want to hear from Ramiro? Yeah. Okay. Right, <laughs> Woo! Hey, all. Yeah. So uh, I'm Ramiro. I've been helping out with the Greater Reset Activation. And these five days are so important because uh, I feel like you come into this world and you're not given a user manual, right? There's no way to figure out how to use your body. No one's really guiding you through it. So this day, especially mind, body, and soul, some of these speakers are going to be speaking directly about that as uh, the right way to connect with your body and mind. And uh, it's really exciting to uh, be hearing from them. Yeah. Derek, you want to come back out here? Right on. Give it up for Ramiro. Give it up for Ramiro. He's going to be helping out behind the scenes. So if there's any technical issues, again, want to thank John Bush holding it down in Central Texas. I know John's got a team of people out there helping. Can we get a round of applause for everybody in Texas right now? Yeehaw! And uh, we got people tuned in all around the world. As John mentioned, we're streaming in six different languages. If you have friends who speak Hindi, French, German, Dutch, Portuguese, 
Spanish. You can tell them to go to the website. There are now buttons they can click to easily get live translations and, and follow along. So we're because we're trying to build a worldwide movement. And as John said, the event is called from activation to expansion. The first one was the greater reset activation. We're still in that same theme, but we're trying to take things to the next level in the way that we're presenting the speakers that we're bringing to the table, the ideas that we're bringing to the table. And we have a lot of different components you're going to be hearing about this week. We have a contest going on right now that's you can still submit videos if any of you've made major changes and you want to win $500 worth of bitcoin cash record a short video submit site the week and we'll be bringing that information to people to try to activate and encourage and inspire more people so that's that's really what we're trying to do here and the idea of the expansion component is really you know we're not talking about problems we're focused on solutions over the next five days speakers from around the world and we want you to take these ideas and to implement them in your lives and then to you know, expand that. If you did something awesome last time, people emailed us and said they built community gardens, they pulled their money out of the bank. Well, we want to see you go even further this time. What can we do now as a community? What are the steps we can take now? Because this isn't just another passive event that we want people just to stream and Zoom at, you know, at home and, and just go back to normal. We want people to take these ideas and really incorporate them. So we invite you to invite all your friends to tune along. John, that's pretty much all I got right now. You want to share some thoughts? Yeah, let's make sure if you're watching online, you share the link, thegreaterreset.org. We're also streaming at Float. Who has Float on their smartphones? It's a social media app that doesn't have censorship. Zuckerberg's not looking over your shoulders. They are one of our sponsors, so we're super grateful to be streaming there. And like Derek said, it's all about activation, integration, and expansion. So I want to encourage everyone in studio here or on the stream to try to just cultivate a consciousness about the information that the speakers are going to be providing and think about how it applies to you in your life. And then when you're not at the event, when you're not listening to these great dynamic speakers, really meditate on how can I apply these principles and these tips and these strategies in my life. And I want to share one thing that's really going to make it a whole lot easier. It just so happens to be the theme of day five, and that's community and relationships. So a lot of people, there's this pride in individualism, which is great, right? We're in Texas, rugged individualism, yeehaw. But really, we are, we're a human, the human beings are social animals. And I think that we can really magnify the impact that we have in our own life, but also magnify the impact that we have on the world. And as Derek likes to say, the seven generations to come. So really take this information soak it up, take notes, and then go back home and apply it with your family, with your community, with the Freedom Cell Network. And I think after this, we can really send some pretty serious ripple waves out through the world. And that's what it's all about. Woohoo! Well, John, 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 we're waiting on our I'm first here. speaker, Joe. No. He, he, he misunderstood the time change. We know that's probably confused a lot of the people. So he'll be here in just a moment. Um, should we mention, did we, we already mentioned the People's Reset Contest. We have the watch parties going on around the world. If you know people elsewhere who aren't tuned in today just yet, they can go to the website. There is a watch party uh, page there. You can see a map of people all around the world who are organizing watch parties. And John's mentioned this before. The thing about, you know, the, the problem that we're responding to, because we are responding, we are reacting, it's called the Great Reset. You guys are all familiar with that phrase, right? I mean, that's probably why you're here. And part of the agenda is to make it where we don't ever interact face-to-face. -face. We just only interact this way and digitally, and we don't 
hug each other. We don't see each other's faces. We don't, you know, smile, all these kinds of things. So part of the event that we're doing here is not only to encourage people to come to Mexico or to come to Texas, but for people to gather in community wherever they live. So last time in January, we had watch parties in Germany, Austria, across parts of Africa, the U.S. and Mexico. And it's the same thing. People are organizing. And so even that, even getting together in community with friends and family is now an act of defiance in 2021. That is a rebellious act to say, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. Yeah, give it up for hanging out with friends and not wearing masks and being free. That's a big part of what we're trying to do here is encourage people to come together and share these ideas. So today we are going to be hearing in just a moment from Joe Martino of Collective Evolution. Uh, we have uh, Peggy Hall, Sire G, Kelly Brogan, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to be joining us this afternoon. I know lots of you guys are excited about that. Dolores Cahill is going to be speaking. So many really powerful speakers who are going to pre be presenting and focusing on solutions. John, you want to share a couple more thoughts while I get Joe ready now that he realizes it's his go time? Yeah, for sure. You know, a really important component is empowerment. And with everything that we're facing in the world, with the Great Reset, which is this new brand of technocratic tyranny, technocracy is ruled by scientific dictatorship, essentially. Uh, and it really is being rolled out substantially ever since COVID happened. But a lot of people facing that and the traditional tyranny of the income tax and police brutality and the military industrial complex, not just here in the West, but all over. A lot of people feel completely overwhelmed and powerless, and it's really easy to find ourselves in a state of victimhood. It seems as though we're facing impossible odds and the enemies of liberty and the cabal or the powers that wish they were, as people like to call them. Uh, you know, they're pretty advanced in their agenda. Uh, but I just want to encourage folks not to be trapped in a victim reactionary paradigm and to truly understand that we are powerful, beautiful, free human beings, and we have the capability to not only create a life of our dreams, but collectively to create a better world that we can pass on to future generations. And we really need to realize that. And I really just want to set that intention for today. All of these speakers that we're going to be hearing from are just normal people like you and I, but they've done some really abnormal things. And we all have that capability in our hearts. We just have to recognize it and take action, right? So I really want to just set that intention as we're listening to people, charge up that empowerment inside, block out any state of victimhood that you may have found yourself in in the past, because together we're going to we're going to change the world. Let's go ahead real quick, if everybody's all right, and take a 60-second break, and we'll get Joe Martino from the Collective Evolution on stage here. Uh, is anybody familiar with Collective Evolution? Have read their articles? Even if you're not familiar with the name, you've probably read their work. They've been around for about 10, 11 years now. One of the first people in the alternative media space to be censored back in 2018, October 2018. They were one of the first big pages to get censored for questioning various narratives and continue to get censored for questioning things like COVID and other other stories like that. But the reason I like Collective Evolution is I personally feel like it aligns with the message of what I was trying to do and what I continue to try to do with my website, my movement, The Conscious Resistance, is it's real journalism, but it's explored through the lens of spirituality and consciousness. And they're willing to maybe push some of those boundaries that traditional journalism isn't. 
and still do it in a credible way. And I think that that mentality, being willing to explore spirituality, consciousness, some of the paranormal and weird things out there and do it in a credible way is what scares the mainstream wannabe journalists. So we're going to take a real quick break and we should be back in just a moment with Joe Martino of Collective Evolution. Thank you guys for being here. Welcome back to the Greater Reset, Activation to Expansion. Thanks, everybody who's tuned in around the world right now, everybody who's going to be watching this after the fact. I don't know if we mentioned this, guys, but last time we did this in January, we had over 150,000 people from around the world watching it live throughout the week. And then even more afterwards in the archives of the videos. So we're really trying to build an international worldwide movement with this. So without further ado... I want to introduce you guys to Joe Martino of the Collective Evolution. If you haven't heard him speak before or heard him his ideas, read him his ideas, I think you're going to be in for a treat. He's got a lot of amazing things to share. We recently had a powerful conversation. I want to invite you guys to go check that out. But uh, all right, Brother Joe, it's all yours. That's it. That's all. Appreciate the uh, the intro there, Derek. Uh, I got I to gotta preface this whole thing by saying I, I thought I had about another 30 minutes or so to prepare. So I don't even have my notes in front of me. But you know what? I do this every day hopefully we can just uh, deliver exactly what I wanted to. Um, you know, looking at this whole conversation here of the greater reset, um, obviously in response to the great reset, we're, we're on the mind, body and soul section of this. And as, you know, Derek aptly mentioned, you know, our work at Collective Evolution has really been focused on um, asking like the big questions, you know, what is it behind what's happening in our world that actually causes it to happen that way? So what do I mean by that? What about our decision-making? What about our state of being? What drives the choices that we make? What drives culture out there? Um, these are all big questions that we've been asking since 2009 in doing this work. And what you start to realize is that there are a number of sort of foundational questions that go on in, in, you know, in our minds and society that end up building the culture, that ends up building the conversations, that ends up building the decisions we make. And in so many ways, what ends up happening is that we, you know, we, we get stuck in these paradigms. We get stuck in these worldviews. We get stuck in these belief systems. And very much so what we're seeing in our world today 
is a, an overarching belief system, an overarching paradigm of strong authoritarian leadership, right? This is something that um, we're seeing in government. This is something that from government, as we as citizens uh, partake in what we see happening at a governmental level, that culture drips down into what we believe as people in society. And then there are people like, you know, you, me, everybody that's watching this, um, that are starting to feel, well, hold on a second. I have different ideas. I have a different feeling. I have a different experience of not only what it necessarily means to be human, but also how I might go about doing things in society. And it doesn't necessarily have this aggressive overarching, let's control everything. Let's go to war with everything. Let's try and minimize all risk to the point of surveilling everybody 24-7 around what's going on. These are belief systems, right? And when we look at the agendas that are playing out on our planet per se, which the reality is, is we can all argue, we can all go and debate what is the agenda? What is actually playing out? What is the intention of, of what's going on? You know, we can debate that all day long. But the reality of the situation is we can see within the culture of what's happening, even with this whole COVID situation, that there is this strong authoritarian leadership that's going on. And the reality is we've already seen where that goes, right? It leads towards a world where, where we, we're all separate from one another. We're all competing with one another. We believe that our nature is to simply be bystanders in a, in a world, in a universe that, that happens to us. We have no control over that world. We have no control over what happens. It's just happening to us. And we're just fighting like animals to survive, right? That is the story that we've been told. And you know, the more you look into this, the more you start to realize that that story isn't necessarily true, that the nature of our reality doesn't necessarily align with that idea. So at Collective Evolution, since 2009, we've been asking these questions. We've been looking at this stuff. We've been diving into anything from consciousness and, you know, the emerging uh, discoveries that are coming out of non-material science, which is telling us a different story about, you know, who, hum who humans are, you know, how our world functions, how our consciousness might interact with our environment. Um, and we also look into, you know, stories that happen in our culture, current events, mainstream events that tell us a lot about how we operate, the decision-making processes that go on, and how culture forms. And if we want to change some of, uh, so much of what's going on in our world, we might not be able to just dive in and just hope everybody's consciousness shifts through you know, one single event or one single discussion that goes on. We kind of have to get into the nitty-gritty. We have to be able to look at current events. We have to look at where humanity is at, at a whole, as a whole and say, how do we actually change this? How do we make this happen? Because if you're watching this, you know that the Great Reset is, is the discussion that's taking place. And you, you might be able to argue that the Great Reset's plan is by 2030, the world is going to look completely different. You might then say, well, you know, that's nine years away. You know, nine years can happen like that. And you, you can imagine that things are going to incrementally change over and over and over again up until that nine years till we're seeing some of the plans that are set forth um, by the elite who are essentially designing uh, what our world could look like in the future. And so we have to be able to say, well, we, we are a little bit short on time, right? In a sense, we, we do have to become engaged. We do have to be part of what's going on. And so part of that is starting to look at these tough, nitty gritty conversations that are going on and asking a lot of questions.
And one of the, the key things that, that we've done here at, at CE, and this is kind of part of what I wanted to focus on most uh, with this particular talk, because look, there's a million things that we can talk about here. There's a million different directions. Um, potentially, you know, some things might be a little more important than others, but all of it's part of a greater picture. And I think there's so many different speakers here uh, over these next five days. And I think they're all going to be sharing something valuable that's going to add to the discussion. But what I wanted to talk about sort of stems from uh, something that I feel was observed over the last four or five years um, that we saw a lot as journalists in this space of, you know, whether it's alternative thinking, whether it's, you know, exploring alternative narratives of what's going on and seeing that, you know, sometimes as we're exploring different ideas around things, we, we are diving into what we call conspiracy. But in, in some ways, we might not be having a conversation that can actually be taken seriously by the rest of the collective. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we're here. This is the, the, the base context that we got to understand. We're, we're playing, you know, on the, in this world right now with 7 billion other people, right? If it's going to be very, very difficult for us as a set of people to branch off into a small little community and go one way, because the reality is, is what's happening with what everyone else in the mainstream might be doing is, you know, they're making decisions. They're moving towards a world that could inevitably destroy so much of this earth that we share. So we can't just look to go towards a new future just as, you know, an individual pod or a small group of people looking to create a specific reality. We kind of have to be able to have these conversations, these advancing conversations in a way that does bridge the gap, that does include everybody. And when, when I look at so much of what has happened over the last you know, five or so years with with Trump's presidency and um, a, a lot of the conspiracy that was discussed around certain things that went on. We can die, you know mention the whole QAnon conversation, and what we started to see was there was a breakdown in communication where we splintered, we divided so deeply as people, where you know the mainstream extreme went one way and the alternative extreme went another way. And these narratives were battling with each other. And on one side, you know, the mainstream felt that everybody that was questioning the, the narratives that were going on in the mainstream were absolutely crazy, unhinged conspiracy theorists. And then on the alternative side, we looked at everybody who was in the mainstream side as, you know, sheep that were just going along with, with whatever the mainstream media said. And that's it. That's all. There was no convergence of ideas. And over, over the, you know, the many years that we've been doing this work, we've always discussed this idea that if we are to advance, if we are to bring forth solutions, if we are to point out where there are challenges, where there are problems in our world, we have to be able to do this in a way where we can actually communicate with one another. So I wrote an essay called uh, Conspiriality, Time for a Serious Conversation, which was kind of asking us to ultimately get into a couple of different states of being. And, you know, that is curiosity, a sense of playfulness, and feeling a sense of ease, both in our minds, but in our bodies, right? So what does this mean? If we actually start to look at what chronic stress, what chronic tension, what chronic um, sort of like polarity hitting at each other, extremes hitting at each other all the times, if we look at what that creates in our bodies, so in our physiology, how that begins to affect our nervous system, 
which then creates a different state of being in our body, a measurable state of being in our body that starts to affect our prefrontal lobe, which is responsible for all of our executive functioning, which is to say, you know, this is where we can plan. This is where we can think clearly. This is where we can communicate. This is where our playfulness exists. This is where our curiosity comes from. This is where our creativity comes from. This area of our brain that humans have that builds the incredible things that we've created so far and that is going to need to be active in a big way as we're creating a new world or, or you know, perhaps a new future. Um, we need to have this online and we need to have this functioning properly. And we might think that, hey, you know what? I feel fantastic all the time. And maybe some of us do. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves and we start asking ourselves the question, how often do I feel tense within my body? How often do I check in during a daily basis and look and say, am I tensing my muscles somewhere? Is my jaw tightened? Is my stomach clenched? Right? Am I doing this with my fists all the time? Right? Am I feeling just almost a constant tension? Do I notice that as I'm reading information or you know, uh, watching a video about something online, do I notice that my reactions can sometimes be uh, almost a little bit aggressive or almost a little bit, um, you know, uh, I just want to say like just the, the feeling of tense, right? We're not playful, right? And so I, I ask us to reflect on this because this can often be an indicator of something that I think is very fair that most of us are experiencing, people that are even in the alternative space, right? Not just say the mainstream people, but people in this space, right? I know I've gone through this myself where things are extremely difficult uh, in our society, right? It's, it, COVID has represented a moment in time where humanity has been hit with fear, 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 fear over and over and over and over and over again. And what does constant fear do to our body? What does it do then to the way our mind works? What does then that state of being, that state of mind do to our relationships, do to our decision-making, do to our ability to disseminate and discuss information, to agree on information, right? It affects all of those things down line. We can all sit here and we can admit that we're living through a time right now where there's a great deal of censorship, that it's extremely difficult to really understand what's going on in our world right now. There's differing perspectives coming from all over the place. One of the biggest things that we're asked at Collective Evolution is, honestly, like, how do I even know what's going on? I, I don't even know who to believe. This one alternative viewpoint says this. This one says this. This one says that. The mainstream says something different. I'm confused. I don't know what is true. I don't know what is going on. And this isn't something that's just happening in sort of the, the alternative slash mainstream space when we're talking about news and information. This is happening in the scientific realm. This is happening all across the board around the world. We are seeing people in, in, in different fields of research saying, look, we're having a, a difficult time coming to any form of synthesis or convergence on ideas. What happens when a collective cannot agree on anything? right? What are the implications of that? If we can't agree on anything and we're all fighting with each other, right? There might be individuals at the top. And I think this is very likely when I say at the top, I mean, at the top of the pyramid of, of power that would be able to then say, well, with all these people divided, unable to agree on anything, whatever we put forth, especially through a, a state of emergency or a state of panic will be something that people accept perhaps, or perhaps not. Perhaps the more we can get into a state of curiosity, get into a state of playfulness, 
start backing off, like taking some time to be self-aware. You know, when, when we when we so aggressively think that uh, an alternative narrative is true simply because it is alternative, what is really going on in our minds there? Are we really taking the time to ask the question, you know, am I believing this because I want this to be true? Or am I not believing this because it came from a mainstream source? Or can I look at a piece of information and say, is this piece of information actually true? And the bigger question here is, what are the implications of not taking that approach? And the reason why I think this is is, is a really important piece, if it kind of hasn't been made obvious in, in what I've shared so far, is that because we're in a time where we can't converge on ideas, we need to be able to take a step back and start questioning ourselves, start questioning what is going on in our beliefs, in our minds. We need to start asking the question, are we jumping to conclusions on certain things because we are uncomfortable with uncertainty? Are we jumping to conclusions on things because we fear what the, the outcome might be on, on one way or another of, of where something might lead? Are we jumping to conclusions on things because we are identified with a particular narrative, a particular belief system, a particular identity, right? It's very easy for us a lot of times in, in the more alternative community to, to project those kinds of on, ideas onto the mainstream. But it's, the mainstream is doing the exact same thing to the alternative. And we have to ask the question, is one more right than the other? Or are we legitimately in a situation within ourselves where we're not maybe asking the honest, deep questions that we really should be asking? Journalism is one of those things that, you know, along with the exploration of spirituality and consciousness over the last, you know, 12 or 13 years of my life has really, you know, forced me to ask the questions, what is objectivity? How do we make sense of things as a collective? And over the course of time, you know, being in this space, being in this alternative community for such a long time and really looking at and, and trying to communicate ideas uh, to the mainstream so that we can come together and start making decisions or, or project, perhaps projecting a future moving forward that, you know, more so resembles something where humanity can thrive. And after all these years, where it led down to for me is not that we just need that one book or that one documentary or that, that one piece of news or that one news source that's just going to keep it all true and all accurate. And, you know, it's not about that. It's been about, are we actually active and, and grounded, you know, change makers, players in this entire discussion? Are we showing up as people in a way where we are feeling good, where we're clear in our minds? where our bodies and nervous systems are well-regulated, where we actually can sense that we're being playful, we're being curious about exploring our world and not just fighting to say, look, these people are wrong, we're right, we need to fight against them, these are all sheeple, these people are all idiots and like blah, blah, blah. That's happening in a very rampant way. And that's typically a sign that we're not in a good space within ourselves. And when we're not in a good space within ourselves, physiologically, our creativity turns off, our ability to communicate turns off, the, the actual electromagnetic field that comes out of our heart, our physiological heart, starts to push out uh, a measurable field that says to other people, there's tension here, there's dysregulation here, this doesn't necessarily feel good, like this is the vibe that we're putting out there. You know, so the question becomes is, before we look outward, at all the things that are going on, have we taken a moment to check within? 
and to really say, how is my state of being? How tense is my body? How rigid is my thinking? Am I getting stuck in us versus them narratives? Am I always trying to prove people wrong? How do the conversations that I have with other people go? Am I always uh, getting into fights with people? Am I getting into fights with people because they actually don't want to hear what I'm trying to say? Or is it possible that I'm actually presenting the information in a little bit of an aggressive manner, right? It's going to be true no matter where we look that you're going to find cases where you can present a piece of information and people will just deny it, just flat out deny it. And that's going to happen. But in 12 years of doing this, I've spoken to tons of people. And I've, because of the approach that, that specifically I've chosen to take in, in doing this work and our journalists do here, it has been very easy for us to get, find common ground with almost every single person that we actually engage with. Because there's something about taking a different approach to this. It is part of being an engaged player in this entire sort of shift from the world we have today to a world that is more so created by the will of the people. I don't feel, and I could be wrong, but this is my hypothesis. I don't feel that we can move forward as a society and create a more thriving world without actually being in a state within ourselves that represents a different level of being, a different state of being, one that's not driven by the chronic stress the chronic fight, the chronic us versus them, the chronic judgment that infects so much of our culture today. I think that what we'll start to see happen if we continue to go down that road is the same level of polarity that we're seeing in our world today will be taken into whatever world we try and create. The same level of us versus them or right versus wrong polarity, which is usually subjective, will be taken into whatever world we try and create moving forward. Which means what what is really being asked and, and kind of what our, I guess, our ethos at Collective Evolution is, is trying to ask, which really, it comes from us just studying what the science has said about how to move forward and what what is it, what represents a healthy body, what represents a healthy mind, what represents how change happens, how does a mind actually change, Right. When we start to look at all these things, we start to recognize that us being in a healthy physiological state is an important part to this entire process. So the solution that, that you know, I'm trying to present today, and, and we've, we've done a research study on this. Uh, I don't have the link in front of me right now. Perhaps we can uh, somehow put it out there or, or you can visit Collective Evolution and, and uh, I can put out a way to find it. But essentially, we did a research uh, study looking at um, the way we went about presenting news and information over the last 12 years, focusing on, again, the, the same things I keep repeating, curiosity, playfulness, and ease, right? If we maintain a sense of curiosity, meaning we're asking more questions versus trying to pr- provide conclusive answers. If you're noticing that you know a lot of voices are providing, this is absolutely true. This is the conclusive answer of what is going on. This is, I know what's happening. This is what it is. It's probably that that person, that voice has lost the sense of curiosity. It's lost the sense of of inquiry that is required to truly start making sense of things as a collective. If we don't make sense of things as a collective, we are not going to move forward. You believing that you have a a clear, when I say you, I just, I'm talking about just everybody in general. This is wisdom that I've applied to myself, right? If I ever become too certain of something and I close down my questioning, that's not a good place to be in, right? So um, what we've tried to do is 
maintain that curiosity, maintain that sense of playfulness. We have to take things less seriously, right? And I know that the stakes are high right now. We're in a time where it feels like there's a lot of pressure, where it feels like we're running out of time. But if we're not taking moments away from our phones, away from our computers, away from news, away from everything that's going on, and just connecting back with ourselves, connecting with community, taking time to regulate our nervous systems, we are going to become increasingly more and more and more and more tense. You will notice this because you will notice the tension in your body. You will notice yourself getting more tired, more drained, um, feeling sometimes a little bit foggy or a little bit uncertain feeling as though there's a sense of, you know, maybe I don't know which direction to take or what's going on. Taking a step back and really taking care of our mind, body, soul, as, as this, you know, sort of segment is really all about uh, for today's, you know, uh, you know, topic of, of the greater reset here. Um, taking that time to do that is, is just as important as sharing some of the news and information that's out there as taking some of the on the ground action that needs to, to be done to create change. We need solutions on this planet right now. We need to talk about them. We need to engage with them. We need to share them. But in order to do that effectively, what I've found in my research over, you know, doing this work for, like I said, for the last 12 years, exploring uh, trauma very deeply. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on it yet, but I've been studying it quite thoroughly for the past year or so. And what I've found is, is that ultimately for us to be able to have these conversations that are going to be so important, Moving forward, everything we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, in the, in the future days here of this greater reset, all the different topics are going to stem around how we're able to get self-aware within ourselves, start changing our state of being and start showing up to these conversations that we need to have with people as if we are literally loving that person like they are ourselves and seeing them and empathizing with them and asking questions and trying to understand them and showing them the same respect that they would want to show us. And I'm going to cap this off. I'm not sure how much time I have left here, but I'm going to cap this off regardless with a story as to how real this is. What I'm suggesting here is that that just as much as the information, just as much as the actual physical solutions are, a shift in the way we think and the way we be is, is just as important as any of those other things. I was witness you know, several years ago um, and I, I, I'll talk about what I'm allowed to talk about because I signed an NDA to go see this. But I went in, in where we live here in, in near Toronto, Ontario. I went down and I saw an, an energy device that um, there was a whole bunch of other scientists. There was a whole bunch of investors uh, from there were foreign investors and foreign scientists coming to look at an energy vice, device that worked on magnets. And that essentially once you started this thing up, its parts were good for between 75 and 100 years with very minimal maintenance going on. The particular device I was looking at ran about two kilowatts, um, which could easily power a home. Uh, it was, you know, about you know, this big, you know, it, was, it wasn't a huge device, um, but it's essentially once it got started up and, and the initial battery power started moving the device in the way that it operated, you could unplug that power and this thing would go perpetually. And it, like I said, it could power up to a home. 
And I watched the faces of the engineers when the other engineers were explaining how this thing worked. I watched their faces light up. I was moved to tears by the time I got home because I saw the playfulness. I saw the curiosity come back into the eyes of these engineers when they realized that they were looking at technology that had the ability to change this world, right? That had the ability to move beyond not just fossil fuels, but to move beyond the primitive technologies of wind, solar, geothermal that are just, these are unnecessary technologies for humanity. We don't need to go back in time. We can advance forward. But what happened with this technology? Why is this technology not on the market today? Various people were all working together to try and bring this technology to market to some extent. My feeling has often been that humanity's way of thinking, our consciousness, is not yet ready for these technologies. And you might respond with, Joe, who are you to say that? Who are you to make that judgment? And you're right. That's a great question. But what I would say in response is, look at the way we operate. Is it possible that we would take this technology, potentially sell it to a power, uh, uh, a power generation company who then sends out power to uh, you know, neighborhoods all around, local neighborhoods all around? Would that power generation company whose creation power is or creation uh, cost to, to build power that every single month over month that's disseminated down to the neighborhoods, would they reduce their prices or would they hold on to this energy unit and, and, and literally just try and maintain their business model, maintain their profits? What would they do? If you had to guess, what would we do as a society? But what started to happen in this particular case is, is the person that I was discussing things with, he was in talks with a local power distributor and they were interested. And I said to him, I said, are you going to ask them what their plan is in lowering energy costs now that their energy production costs will be zero? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he's like, because that's up to them to decide. Because what's ultimately happening here is until we change the way we think, get out of this model of I own and control and disseminate to you and, and, I, and this is mine and I want to make all the profit and it's all about me and taking care of myself. Until we can get out of that way of thinking, not just as individuals, but build that culture, these devices will not hit the market. They will implode in on themselves because humanity's way of thinking will start to tamper this process. And it did happen in this particular story. There began fights legal battles and disputes going back and forth and back and forth between the inventor and the company that owned the technology and some of the people that were licensing and trying to sell the technology to people. That technology nobody knows about, and it may never hit the market because the amount of legal battles that are going on, because humanity's you know, separate, you know, compete with each other, I want to own everything, level of consciousness got in the way, just like it would if we don't start to really you know, go inside and say, there's more to this picture than just what the solution is. There's more to this picture than just one documentary or one piece of information. There is a, what you might call a spiritual aspect to all this, which a spiritual, to me, spirituality is defined as what is my relationship to myself? What is my relationship to others? What is my relationship to the earth, to nature, to the cosmos, whatever it might be. We're examining relationships. We're examining the nature of our reality. We're getting out of all the cultural programming that keeps us tense and fighting with one another. And we're stepping into what could it look like if the world could thrive? How do we embody that? What would it take for us to embody that as people? And the more of us that embody that and live from that, 
the more these solutions will be able to come about, the more we'll be able to have these conversations. So the final cap off, again, I don't know how much time I have. I apologize if I've gone over, but I will just summarize by saying we're in a time where it feels as though censorship is at an extreme height and that you know any sort of dissenting narrative is being censored as fast as humanly possible. The, the, you know, the simple question I have is, are we bringing these conversations in a warlike manner where we're saying, look, the alternative is trying to oust the mainstream. We are battling with the mainstream. Or are we trying to take a curious and playful conversation to people in the mainstream and inviting them to look at something differently, inviting them with open arms, with respect and with curiosity that says, have you had a look at this? What would it take? How can we have a conversation about this? Versus if you don't believe what I'm saying, you're a sheep. I, I really believe this is a huge part of this. And, and, it, and it, it's only something that we can control. We can't control what other people say. We can't control how other people judge us, but we can control what we say and how we judge other people. And that's, that's pretty much all I wanted to, wanted to share here. Uh, it feels like the right time to, uh, to say that's it. That's all. Wow. Can you hear the audience in here? They're absolutely loving it. Give it up for Joe. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate the responses. Hey, thanks. That was a really great way to start off the week's events. I think you had some very potent things to say that a lot of people need to hear. And we all pride ourselves in being awake, right? But do we ever really fully wake up unless we're sitting underneath the tree and reach nirvana or something? <laughs> so can you share again how people can find your information and check out your website with us? For sure. Uh, you can go to collective-evolution.com and there you'll find you know, all of our work. Um, you'll find the different ways you can support us if you want or sign up to our email list. We Just very briefly, we are in the process of, of releasing a new platform called The Pulse that will take over a lot of our journalism. And uh, if you do sign up to our email list in the coming weeks, you'll find out why we've made that decision because uh, it was a long, hard thought decision uh, to do some of the, make some of the changes that we're currently making right now. Well, again, thank you so much for, uh, I think we have a second. Um, maybe we could take an audience question. Is there anyone that has a quick question? Do you want to come on up here? We're getting ready for the next speaker and the control room's getting things together there. So let's, let's just take a quick question here from the audience. Come on up. Come on down. You're the next contestant. Whoa. So hi, I'm Barbara Kramer. And, um, I just wanted to say that I needed this con I needed to hear this. I felt like you were just speaking to me, although we were all here, that I'm like, yes, I needed these tools because all of us that are really committed to waking up, you know, our communities and our universe, we really have to do it from our heart. And I've been getting that I've been doing it from this place of just I'm here, I want to save everybody and wake everybody up. But what I really get is that we've got to be able to reach out an olive branch and meet people where they are. And I just like, thank you because I just, so it wasn't really a question, but it was just like, wow, what a great way to begin this. So thank you. Cool. Thanks, John. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think there's a, a really strong tendency for people to go tribal, right? Which has its benefits for us to tribe up. But with, after the Trump era, which I don't know if it's gone or if it's coming back or what the deal is with all that. 
But things were already increasingly divided, and oftentimes it's politics that divides everyone because everyone's forced to participate in this one monolithic institution, and whoever is in power forces their views on everyone else, whether they like it or not, or consent to it or not. I certainly don't consent to be governed by this nasty, nasty empire. And uh, everyone's all charged up and amped up, and then Trump came along, and it just totally took it to another level. And then COVID came along, and for some reason... And in this crazy crisis, whether manufactured or organic, people have different views. Even people within our community are like, what do you mean the virus? There's no virus. It's like, okay, yeah, I interviewed Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I still got really chest tightness thing. It all went away when I nebulized with colloidal silver, however. But regardless, everybody found just so many things to be divided against. And I caution folks that are more open-minded and critical thinking about things to try to have compassion. So don't watch a lot of news in a hospital, but every once in a while we'll check it out on YouTube or I listen to the radio news. And every time I hear what they're cranking out about COVID and about the vaccines now, I can kind of resonate like, well, I know what people are really feeling. Because a lot of people don't be like, oh, what's, let's turn it on to see what the latest propaganda is so I can somehow relate to my fellow human beings. A lot of people are like, everything they say is 110% true, and oh my God, I am freaked out. Don't want to be by anybody. So just try to have compassion and put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think what's really important, and it really resonates with what Joe had to say, is don't let it further divide us than people already are especially when it comes to your family and stuff. And then the vaccines rolled out and the folks that are all in favor of the vaccines, they're like, we don't want to be next to the people that that don't take vaccines or don't wear masks. And now all of a sudden, all the people that are critical thinkers are like, we don't want to be around the people that took the vaccine. And it's like, wait a second, what are we doing here? Are we going to go hide in a freaking cave? No, got to overcome it. And in the end, we don't really have control over much else besides what we can do and the choices we can make. And then we can try to just radiate positivity and love and compassion. And hopefully that spreads to our fellow human beings. So thank you, Joe. That was a great, a great way to start. Let me see how we're doing over here. All right. Well, I'm just going to keep talking control room until you guys give me the, the yank. Um, I got some jokes. (laughs) Be careful. Careful there. Here's a dad joke. This exact pair of jeans, my girlfriend's like, those look like dad jeans. And I'm like, hello, I'm a dad. She also said today, I said, how do you like my outfit? She's like, you look very Texas. And I was like, well, I'm a Texan. Come on, load up the pony. Let's ride on down to Buda. Or as everyone keeps saying, Buda. I don't know what it actually is, but we do have a great lineup of speakers today, and each day has a certain theme, and so we purposefully started with mind, body, and soul because that's the foundation of everything, and like Joe was talking about, if we find ourselves in this reactionary paradigm and this state of ego-driven arrogance, right? I remember back in college, I discovered Alex Jones. I got the documents right here. And I used to listen to this guy every Tuesday and Thursday to class with my headphones. And I thought that I was just so much better. And irritable. And 
my high school buddies were like, we don't want to hang out with you, dude. You're kind of cramping our style a little bit. Let it go. We're trying to drink a beer. We don't want to hear about Building 7 again. Right? We want to be right? But we don't want to damage our relationships. We still want to be able to connect with other human beings. Trapped in this if we're trapped in this arrogant state of being awake, now it's like awake, woke, wait, I don't know, awake, but I don't know, then it's going to be even harder to, to relate to people because we are activists and we are, I hope everyone's on a mission, they're on the same mission as me to create love and like uniting it together, right? But if you're walking around with your head in the clouds and everyone's a sheeple and COVIDiot, that was another thing was like, COVIDiot, is that my side or their side? Which one's the COVIDiot? Mask hole, is that the guys wearing the mask walking down the street by themselves or is that me for not wearing the mask? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we're all just a bunch of jerks. I don't know. So if you, if you have that mentality and that us versus them and that division, then you're not going to be able to wake anyone up anyway or win them over to our way of thinking, which I think more in line with the natural order of things of peace, freedom, and harmony. So what we got going down there in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. Thank you. Are you guys there, Zihuatanejo? Okay, I guess I'm just going to do the whole show here and just keep on rocking all right john thanks for okay thanks there we go your comedy your comedy routine while we wait uh, i just want to say we do apologize for the delay we're waiting for peggy hall we haven't seen her just yet so we're going to take a quick sponsor break play a couple videos and hopefully be back with her if not we're going to jump right into sire g of green med info guys so thank you hey we'll hey derek right derek yeah, yeah. Hey, the, I don't know if you see it on your end, but the Joe Martino thing keeps popping up. I can't turn it off on my end. We're working on that. All right, let's okay. go to a okay, thank you. sponsor. We'll be right back. We'd like to send a special thanks to Inescale. With over 15 years of experience in data management and hosting, Inescale delivers innovative and reliable cloud hosting and cloud servers for your personal or business needs. Here at The Greater Reset, we trusted Inescale with the hosting of our site, and they helped us to handle over 150,000 visits during our last stream. No matter how big or small, you can trust Inescale with your hosting needs. More information at Inoscale.net.
Okay. I think we have Peggy Hall coming up soon. Uh, producer, do we have Peggy Hall coming up soon? Let me know if we do. And uh, I can introduce her. Okay. All right. We have a great, great lineup for today. We are rocking and rolling, moving and grooving. And uh, pretty soon we're going to talk to Peggy Hall. She is the uh, healthy American freedom fighter who's done a lot of great work pushing back against the lockdowns, which can you believe all that lockdown stuff? Wasn't that terrible? I mean, some places had it worse than others. And if you know, if you notice, some of the places that had the most aggressive lockdowns, the most hardcore mask policies and hardcore social distancing, they seem to fare just about the same as the places like Florida that were pretty lax and laid back, even Sweden. It's almost as though the virus just came, spread, and then slowly dissipated, no matter what the policy was or not. Well, Peggy Hall has been doing a lot of incredible work to push back on this because it's important that we push back. A lot of people's livelihoods were destroyed. You know, that's another area I want to encourage people to stay empowered with, right? I know a lot of people had a shakeup in their employment and their work and the business that they owned, perhaps, which can be absolutely devastating. And unfortunately, oftentimes things happen that are out of our control. But one thing that we do, right, you don't have control over whether the government locks down and you have to either do civil disobedience or lose your business. And then oftentimes when you do the civil disobedience, it costs more. So it's a big struggle. But we we do have control over how we choose to show up in those circumstances. And at the end of the day, if we show up in a state of victimhood and bitterness and anger and rage, it only makes things worse. Whereas if we say, you know what, unfortunately, there's a lot of terrible things going on in the world but I'm going to do my best to navigate them and to ensure that I can take care of my family, take care of myself and to earn a living, no matter what they do, what they say, it's just makes it a little harder. But like old Thomas Paine said, the, the more difficult, the, I'm blowing this great quote, that which we uh, obtain too lightly, we esteem too lightly. All right, I don't know. You guys down there, in Mexico? Hey, John. The harder the conflict, thanks for sharing that. the triumph. That's what it is. All right, you guys take it John, away. We're gonna we're gonna go to Sire instead of Peggy in just a moment. So if you would like to introduce Sire, we can hand that off to you. And apologize to everybody watching on screen. We have no idea why Joe Martino's thing keeps playing over and over. Fun little technical difficulty. But uh, John, yeah, go ahead and introduce Sire. We'll bring him on in just a second. Okay, great. All right. So, man, there's this great website out there, Green Med Info. Wow. It's got a lot of really quality content, and it speaks truth to power. And for some reason, this content is, is controversial with the, main, with the mainstream. Stuff like, you can have control over your health without having to rely on Western medicine. Or you can boost your immune system by staying happy, exercising, and eating healthy. And the censors say, no, we can't have that. Well, Sire G, man, him, Kelly, we're going to be hearing them here in a little bit. These are two really powerful people, and we are super excited and grateful to have them be a part of this. They're also public enemies, as Sire maybe could tell you about. 
but it's because they speak truth to power. They have a great audience and really powerful conscious message. So we're super excited to have Sire G here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's... <laughs> Yeah, thank you. It's I wish I could be there, you know, um, it, but this is a great opportunity and honor to connect virtually. So, um, okay, well, uh, this is, uh, you know, we're all in this together. I, I do feel really connected to your community, particularly. Uh, I know John and I had an interview discussion recently, and it's just so exciting, you know, that we are focused on solutions. And I think many of us went through, you know, our own version of a dark night of the soul with what's transpired over the past year. And collectively, you know, it's still happening, it's accelerating. So, you know, for me, it's really brought me back, if you will, to my existentialism roots, you know, which preceded me actually studying existentialism in college. It's just that I was pretty much born a rather sickly, rather isolated, depressed uh, individual. And so much of my story was really about recovering just this, this vitality, which, you know, often eludes us even now, obviously. Um, it's difficult to maintain. But one of the things that has really come up strongly for me, and I think a lot of you out there in this window, is that just maintaining our health is a radical act of, if you will, protest uh, in a way that, you know, rallies and the various ways that we traditionally solicit, uh, you know, entitlements in society. It's, it's, it's a different type of activism. And the greater reset is really a great example of that. You know, there's just this um, sense that we are all taking real responsibility for our health and our well-being. And it's not reducible down to just having, you know, a really perfect, uh, you know, carcass, you know, sort of meat suit. It's actually going much deeper now for most of us. So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to say that for me, um, I'm actually, I think, feeling better now and in better health, uh, both physically and spiritually than I have, you know, since I came <laughs> into this plane. And I can thank uh, the you know, transformative aspects of the past year and a half. And colleagues like yourself and the people that are part of this event, you know, many of us, many of you have learned ways to take this as an opportunity. Uh, so for me, you know, the Green Man Info story is very interesting because it has its own karma. You know, I just kind of watch Green Man Info like any of you who know it, it's, it doesn't even really feel like it's me anymore. It's just got this certain mission in the world and it's irritating to the powers that be. And, you know, they want to snuff it out, out and they want to, you know, use the traditional approaches of taking the founder and, and smearing him in mud and trying to attack him or delete him. And, you know, they've accomplished quite a lot in the sense that, uh, you know, in just a few past few months, you know, the million something fans on the various social media platforms completely gone. So there's been a sort of de decapitation event, but for me, it's actually affirmation that I'm ready to surrender to, you know, a new path because social media provided such power, right? It provided such, you know, such connectivity initially before we knew it was weaponizable, 
And that's actually truly, you know, a, a term that we can use now. It's a, it's a weapons grade technology. Um, so, so now, you know, here we are, you know, we're seeing that it's, you know, all the, all the memories, like, I mean, I still have Facebook, right? Like I have my own Facebook account. They've taken away a lot of the pages, but, you know, I have memories of when, you know, my daughter was like one, you know, on there. And, and so, you know, we had this moment, uh, which was actually right around the time that Greenman Info started to really explode. Uh, wasn't so much that there were a bunch of abstracts sitting there on a website. It was really the reporting on it and social media that gave it this exponential reach. Um, so, you know, now I'm seeing that um, we're all in this transition. And for me, you know, the quote, decapitation of all these conventional big tech platforms, I mean, even like Linktree, uh, wouldn't let me link to my own website on an article about vaccine harm because it was an unsafe site. It's like even these little micro tech companies are in collusion to basically shut down and censor any dissenting voice. So, um, so anyway, so it's an opportunity truly to go back to the fundamentals, which is, first of all, I don't think it's any longer about warning the world about you know, for example, the COVID-19 vaccines, if you want to call them vaccines, because obviously we know they're a gene therapy and totally experimental and violate, you know, every possible form of, um, you know, human uh, experimentation ethical codes that have ever been, you know, uh, have, have ever existed. But the idea is that we are um, definitely getting to the point where it's not about lack of information. So, so, so that's what I mean. It's like Greenman Info, okay, it's like got, got its, uh, you know, it's, it's flipper caught in the gears of uh, samsara, you know, the juggernaut of what we're seeing unfold before us. Um, but I'm not really in it anymore. I'm, I'm an observer as well. And we'll see what happens, okay? Uh, so, for example, many of the people that you've attracted to your event have been looking at the architecture of the weaponized internet. And there's domain name servers, right? That system is a huge point of vulnerability and centralization, which is the same thing, right? Any centralized service is a point of vulnerability. You can seize any site basically through that system. So there are projects, as you know, that are decentralized, that are replacing the domain name servers. So you can own your own name, you know, on the blockchain and it's, it's yours, right? So it's exciting to be in a window where although it looks, oh, my God, the, you know, the sky is falling and we're getting deplatformed and they're going to come get us. It's just really an opportunity to shake off the extremely toxic, um, you know, systems that we've uh, been feeding, you know, until now. I mean, there is something to this language of a great awakening outside the QAnon conspiracy psyop. Um, and, and so I think a lot of us are waking up to that. And again, Looking at these solutions is so encouraging. So for me, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about today was really about the importance of ecstatic practice. And what I mean by that is like the body is truly a bliss technology. And I have people like um, Dan uh, Win Winter to thank for helping me to better understand how to articulate this. But I think many of us have experienced um, the other side of the highly traumatized modern body, right? Moments of ecstatic release. It could be through plant medicine. It could be through dance. It could be drumming. It could be connecting, eye gazing with a partner. 
It could be running a marathon. There's so many ways in which our body affords us an experience of divine merger, right? And that fundamentally, my understanding of what's really happening on an epic epoch level, you know, on this planet is this battle between, you know, this technocratic AI Borg-like existence that they're rolling out for us, you know, Klaus Schwab style, you know, we won't own anything and, you know, we'll be constantly surveilled and the whole social credit system nightmare times a thousand. And then you have the other side of it, which are people reconnecting it into nature, you know, into the Godhead of nature. Okay. AI or actual intelligence, like plugging into the elements and let, letting serendipity, for example, and synchronicity unfold, which is so interesting, right? Because in surveillance capitalism, they've reproduced that type of synchronicity through technology. So it's like this sorcerer's illusion trying to reproduce, you know, the ancient, divine, impossible synchronicities that happen when you're plugged into real connection at a heart level. So it's like this bifurcation, right? Ontological bifurcation that's happened. And, um, you know, what I'm understanding is that it's a call back to the most fundamental human and even you could call it interspecies connectivity with nature because for example i have chickens now thanks in part to the kinds of communities that are attracted to events like this and i had no idea that i would be envious of the chickens who are ecstatic every day we let them out of their you know protective cage right (laughs) and they are just like running around just like so happy and now they're pets and that's defined by the fact that they allow us to pet them literally and they enjoy it i enjoy petting them and it's like this beautiful, sensual experience of being plugged into nature. And so, you know, I could pull out the Bhagavad Gita or the Bible and try to connect to spirituality. But the reality is when I look at those chickens playing in the yard, that is a better representation of divinity and benevolence than anything I've ever you know, read. You know, farmers have always known this apparently, or people, very basic people have been plugged in at that level. So, so what I'm trying to really articulate actually goes back to something I was extremely passionate about when I was in college because I studied the works of um, Morris Merleau-Ponty, who was known as a phenomenologist and an existentialist. Those are just labels, basically. He was trying to go back to the things themselves, to direct experience, to try to understand what is really real. And when you go into the ontological structure of the human body, it is such an incredible rabbit hole because on the one hand, let's take your literal hand. It is both an object, right? That I can touch. So it's a touchable object. It's a thing among the world and universe of things. Right. And by the way, this is exactly what the powers that be want us to think we are primarily, which is simply this Newtonian, you know, sort of Euclidean Cartesian object But then all it takes is turning your attention and turning that hand into something that touches and feels or an organ of percipience, right? So fundamentally, that one thing, this flesh, has become object and suddenly subject. So there's a reversibility. And so ecstatic practice is really just a way of understanding how the body in a natural, healthy state engaged in the world. You could be an athlete, like just... Uh, with a, uh, a free throw 
And there's just that zone, right, where you are no longer aware of your physical body, the apparatus, the you know, infinite number of little things that have happened so that you can perfectly shoot that ball. You are the ball. You are one with that experience. And that's what the body is set up for. It's known as ecstasis or standing out from. So you've just went from being an object, a carcass, a thing among the world of things, to being this openness through which the universe really experiences itself. Another thing is a visual field, right? So you have eyes that are visible, these chunks of flesh. But then when you're really looking and seeing what's what's unfolding, it's like you're a cyclops, you know, like God punched a, a, an impression into your, your this head and the visible world is flowing through this area, making itself seen through you. So that's, again, more of the ecstatic body. So we are both of these things. We are incarnate as a paradox. And it's important, I think, for people to understand that when you're healthy, ecstatic experience, you know, merger with the world is actually just written into the things themselves. And what happens is when we are sick or when we are not thriving, you know, maybe we have arthritis, your, your focus is on this body, right? And what's wrong with it and all the victim stories and emotional baggage that comes with feeling limited by the surfaces of who you are, right? And this is the agenda that has literally crystallized out around the world, right? The greatest sorcerer's um, trick ever devised was for us to see each other as simply vectors of possible infection and morbidity and lethality, that we would objectify one another in this way is the panopticon. We don't need some massive global technological surveillance grid to self-objectify with or other objectify with. We're doing it ourselves because we have consumed the deadly poison, the ideological poison of, you know, germ theory, classical germ theory, that we are simply, again, vectors of lethality based on the limitations of, of this flesh, flesh suit that we wear. So this is interesting because that's what Italian philosopher Giorgio Gambin, who spoke up about the totalitarian takeover happening in the name of COVID-19 and the you know, states of exception that sovereign states made to declare these emergencies, right? He basically was pointing out that we were reducing ourselves back into an animal state. And that animal state has a limbic correlate, you know, there's a fight or flight upregulation, and we start to collapse in as these bodies, body objects. So when you're connecting, and again, when you're using technologies, it could be drumming, you know, it could be um, dancing, it could be eating food, it could be farming, it could be massaging. This is when we transcend ourselves becoming, if you will, intersubjective or experiencing that divine connection, which, which, you know, links us all together. So, so for me, you know, in this window has been very stressful because he identified as an activist, right? Like I'm here to try to warn people like, you know, and, and really the story of agreement info is that, you know, when I started it in 2000 and, um, it was back in 2008, you know, I was, I was really concerned about the issue around vaccinating my own children and, and, and the agendas right around me. And so it was so clear to me like that this was not about health. It was not about evidence or science that this was, 
really a political agenda, right? So, so now as we move forward and I see all that, um, it's clearer than ever to me that we are needing to refocus our attention back on ourselves. And this is really important. You know, it's like when I think of the Buddha quote, it's probably attributed to him. I don't know if they can prove that this was something he said, but that no one deserves love, you know, more on, on this planet than yourself. Like, and that that's where we are coming back to, right? Is that um, the powers that be would like nothing more than to energize the dialectics between us. Like, let's take as an example, this recent uh, discussion around the vaccinated adversely affecting the unvaccinated. What an amazing inversion that is, isn't it? At first, you know, there's a sort of like schadenfreude or there's a feeling of, see, it's reverse eugenics, you know, actually you're dirty and you're the one who could hurt me because you've just participated in this nonsensical, you know, experiment. But the reality is that that energy and that division is more of the same. And it's actually going to enable this agenda to move forward as well, maybe even accelerate it. So I think what I'm saying fundamentally is that, you know, we're in a window of opportunity to really recapture ourselves in a new way, right? Like where health is both spiritual, it's physical, it's related to our community. It has to do with healing our ancestral lineage, because when you really get into the traumas that have been embedded, installed into you and me from previous generations, from the you know massive blood sacrifices of millions of people that died during these wars that were architected, of course, by some of the same powers and families that are still architecting this takeover, um, then it's about really clearing that karma once and for all because there's a lot of hatred installed within us. You know, you know, we think about DNA adducts and passing on of, you know, genetic defects, you know, participating in that very um, misleading, you know, world, the biomedical world of genes, you know, drive your destiny. But it's, I think, true that we have, again, all of these deep traumas within us that actually do constitute a good portion of our motivation you know, that we don't realize that that is where we're acting from, even in the best interests of others. Like that's so much of what drives people today to stand up and fight, you know, is really unfortunately coming from a lot of wounded material. So I don't mean to be bypassy either, because I do think they're very concrete things that we can do. I'm still a huge advocate of people using online digital advocacy. So for example, there's a National Vaccine Information Center, you know, we have, obviously, uh, Bobby's going to be on speaking soon. And there's Children's Health Defense, you know, there is Stand for Health Freedom, which is a, you know, nonprofit I, I co-founded that gives people voice and an ability to act. So we do still have these technologies. And I do feel that people can take some of that uh, angst and aggression they feel and put it into good use. But I do think still that for me moving forward and for maybe many of you listening is that when you know what it's like when you're triggered, right? You know, you can feel it at body or chakra level. For me, it often comes right here. It's like in my solar plexus and this is desire to fight or defend. And when I, when I do something with that energy, it could be write an article for Greenman Info and then send it out to 500,000 people 
I kind of know that it's going to create a karmic wave in the universe. So I'm working on trying to stay at a higher level, if you will, um, more equanimity, because ultimately it doesn't make me a less effective fighter in the world. It just means that I'm going to be less vectorized and less susceptible to being knocked off my center. Um, I've said it a lot, but I think I'll say it again because I think people really need to hear this. You know, one of the things that I discovered in the process of writing my book, Regenerate, which is all about resetting ultimately, it was resetting, if you will, the ideological template that informs modern medicine, which for me is not so much about preventing or treating disease, rather, again, installing specific types of trauma which will then enable people to be captured for political, you know, um, purposes, which I think we've all seen has been really confirmed, right? That if we didn't have the weaponization of germ theory, we would not have seen the closing of the world basically, or the intermediation of a anti-human agenda into all so socioeconomic behavior on this planet over the course of a year. So, for me, it was just mind blowing to really plumb the depths of, you know, the new science that has emerged on how our body works, right down to how do the cells produce energy. And one of the things that was so amazing was discovering that the strength of the elect electrical field across the membrane of the mitochondria is equal to that of a lightning bolt, which is 30 million volts. So that discovery really got my mind thinking about how is this possible? How can there be a lightning bolt worth of potential energy within a single mitochondria? And then when you do the calculations on the trillions of mitochondria in the body, that is a near infinite amount of energy that seems to be available to the human body. Um, and so this is another example of, okay, we, if, we, if we accept that, or accept that the healthy cell membranes of a human body can approximate that of the tensile strength of steel. And then we juxtapose that to, again, what is the dominant form of Kool-Aid that the whole planet has consumed now for over a year, which is that a viral particle, submicroscopic, you know, quantum or electron level resolution, uh, discernible particle from Wuhan, China, just traveled around the world and killed all these people without any evidence that that's actually happened because PCR tests don't identify replication competent viruses, obviously. Everyone on the planet knows that by now. So they managed to take the world over with this sorcerer's trick, shifting agency away from a body that has literally miraculous power and strength into this vision of this invisible thing that somehow the CDC or some person in a white coat or hazmat suit is going to tell us, you know, is going to threaten us. Like this is, it's, it's like middle ages. I mean, we, I've been gaslit from the moment this happened, as I know a lot of you have. Um, so that's why it's so important that we focus in again on the infinite power that is available to the body. And this is based on very well vetted science, biophysics, is that we are only just beginning to understand what, what a water molecule is, you know? And in my book, in chapter three, I talk about water cavitation, the fact that a, an exotic water bubble induced either mechanically through a propeller on a ship, 
an acoustical wave, um, a laser, can induce a, a steam bubble that has temperatures that are the same as the surface of the sun. We're made of water. You know, we have uh, ultrasound capability in our own mouth. Like we could theoretically induce these you know, micro cavitation events in our own body. So, I mean, the implications of this are just next level. Not to mention the fact that water cavitation would produce infinite clean energy as well as rare earth elements through what are basically, basically water cavitation can cause de novo synthesis of the entire periodic chart. If you want to look this up, go check out uh, Mark LeClaire from Nanospire. It's an amazing story. It's, it's just will blow your mind. But that's what I'm saying is like we are so on the precipice of the disclosure around what not only our bodies are capable of, which is infinitely greater than what even I conceived um, before writing this book, is that, you know, I, I, I knew a body could cure itself from anything, cancer included. Right. But I didn't understand that we could transduce energy and information from the quantum vacuum and that we did, we don't even technically need to eat because there are examples of this in yogi traditions and breatharians. That's amazing. Even if I'm not capable of it, it takes lifetimes of practice to attain that state. If one human being can do it for a microsecond, it means it's possible. So relative to what they're saying, which is we are so weak that we have to cower in our homes at the prospect of a non-lethal, basically, vector, which no one can seem to isolate, that it just blows your mind, doesn't it? So, so again, that aside, because, again, talking about that is what gets people like me in all this trouble, right? They want to deplatform you and delete you from the Internet for even asking the question or raising a question on this topic. The focus should be back to where you're really at here at The Greater Reset, which is encouraging the development of these communities, these connections, like the people who share our values. And I'm a huge advocate of the movement to decentralize the internet. To me, that is so encouraging. And it's was latent within the concept of Bitcoin. And now we're seeing projects like Cordal, and there are many others I'm sure out there too, that are attempting to dis, you know, disintermediate the conventional power structure from our ability to connect and to share value. And that is so revolutionary and so encouraging that um, that's the energy we need to bring in an anchor uh, versus obviously all the other things we could be thinking about. It's not to deny those realities, but to be anchored and to prioritize the things that truly inspire us and that we know will be possible if we continue to um, you know, hold that that vision so again super excited about the greater reset and really happy we're able to participate um like i said i know for me this opportunity that has uh, arisen after being deplatformed is to go back into working on myself because i know that that's the best way that i can truly show up in the world for others you know including those closest to me my, my own daughters you know to me that's like such a huge opportunity. So I'm excited. Like I said, I've got chickens who are constantly communicating to me the uh, eye thou gaze that few humans seem to be able to reflect to me, including my, myself. It's not easy to reflect God to someone else, right? We're looking at each other like it's and things all day. 
But um, yeah, it's a beautiful moment. And I think that many of you, you know, that are involved in this event or even participating should probably feel some pride and uh, give yourself credit because I know a lot of us made difficult decisions and really some of us put our necks out and I think it's really had an impact. You know, the fact that they're not willing to debate, but they are censoring indicates that, you know, they are uh, threatened by what we are bringing. But um, I think the most exciting thing is the solution. So again, I'd love to uh, just thank John and Derek and the others involved in this event for the vision that you have had, the intention. And uh, you know, Kelly and I, it makes us feel so much better uh, being in the world with people such as yourself. So thanks again for the opportunity uh, to participate. Yeah, we'll get that fixed. Sire, I hope you can hear the applause out here in Mexico. Make, a, make, a, make some noise for Sire G and Green Man Info. Uh, we're, we have a really special guest in just a moment that we're going to be bringing on. But before we do that, we're going to change a couple of things on the screen. And I want to just shout out everybody who's watching online. And those of you who are here in Ziwa, just a couple of housekeeping things I want to let you know. We do have drinks being served over there. There's also a menu. If you're on the Telegram group for Ziwa, we just posted the menu. It's from uh, Entrezanka's restaurant down the block. You can order over there, and they'll bring your food here to you at the venue if you want to hang out and not have to leave. They also have a buffet just down the block. So go get some drinks, check out what's going on over there, and uh, yeah, I know we can get you some food here in the house. Ramiro's going to take care of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff we got going on here. We're about to add Spanish captions on the screen, and apologize if it's not the most legible. We're working on, on making that happen. Because as we said earlier, we want this to be an international, worldwide movement where people can tune in you know, I've been doing this for 11 years now, and I've written a few books and done some different things, documentaries. But this last year that I've been living in Mexico, I realized, wow, most of my work is is only in English. And I keep meeting all these amazing Spanish speakers, and I've you know met some some German truthers and some Dutch truthers and people. You know, there's our German truth right here. Shout out to Peter. <laughs> Everybody, you know, from all around the world who are connected. But you know what? We have it easy. Those of us who speak English, the folks who don't. They try to figure it out because they care that much about the truth. How many of you are trying to learn Spanish or Dutch or German because you want to learn the truth? Some of us, right? But most of us, it's like, oh, it's in English. It's so easy and convenient for us. These other folks, our other brothers and sisters who do not speak English, they have been putting in the extra time and effort. So I'm dedicating myself, my work, to translating more of my work in Spanish, German, etc. And that's why we're, we're doing these, these captions here. And we want to invite you to let your friends and family know they can go to the website and they can listen along in six different languages it's it's a new thing we're trying out so it's not perfect just yet we'll get it we'll get it fixed over the next day or so uh but yeah i just wanted to mention that and i believe we're getting ready to bring on robert f kennedy jr i'll let john come on and do the final introductions but i just want to say to rfk and you know the work that he does with the children's health defense anybody familiar with children's health defense i mean great organization I mean, he's been doing great work for a long time and uh yeah, I, I appreciate his voice out there. I appreciate somebody who's willing to speak about controversial topics, especially somebody who comes from a family that is, uh, you know, a people family. Somebody who, despite anybody attacking them for their voice or 
trying to label them. Because if you haven't noticed, guys, we had Sire on just a moment. We're about to have RFK Jr. on. We're going to have uh, Sire's wife, Kelly, on in just a little bit. That's three of the disinformation dozen, according to the mainstream. These are disinformation dozen responsible for more than 65% of disinformation on the Internet. And we're, we're blessed to have them here with us. So shout out to the disinformation dozen. But, yeah, I just want to go ahead and say uh, I appreciate RFK Jr.'s work. I'm glad that he's here with us. I'm glad he's been able to make time with us. John, I'll let you take over, and then we'll get him on, on the, the screen in just a moment. Thank you guys for staying with us. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That was great uh, from Sire. I always say Sayer, but I guess it's Sire. Maybe Derek knows better. Sayer? Well, that's how it sounds here in Texas. All right. I tell you what. Sayer G. Yeehaw. So uh, I did an interview with Sire G, Green Med Info, and uh, sure enough, it got pulled by YouTube. It's just because it had Sayer G, dude's hardcore band, for just sharing the truth. And now another gentleman that is also hardcore band is, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Wow, what a powerful guy. Uh, children's Health Defense, the work that they're doing. And then just the dedication, right? Because there's a lot of people that have a platform, they have an audience, they have a rich history. And you could tell that there's folks that take it to a whole nother level with dedication and like what I like to call massive action. Not that from old Tony Robbins. Because like people can talk the talk and they can walk the walk. But they can they sprint the sprint, right? And so RFK Jr. is somebody that you'll see speaking in person, online, just really giving it his all. And I think we need more people like that. So we are super excited and honored to have him grace this stage. So are we ready for RFK Jr. control room? Okay, not yet. You know, when, when we hear from really cool, powerful people, I just want to encourage everyone to, to recognize that all can reach that level of influence and magic and change, right? We all have that change maker in us, and it just takes recognizing that. And then the cool thing, whenever you start having little mini victories, like maybe you got something to say, and you just finally write that blog post, and then you share it online. It gets shared eight times, ten times. And you're like, okay, that's great. I'm reaching people. Then you share the next one. You're like, I got this. Let me fine-tune my writing a little bit. You share another one. Reach 20 people, 30 people. You start building this momentum, and there's this feedback loop where you on stage. You deliver your first speech. You talk to the city council for the first time. You are feeling bold enough to speak to a stranger about something because someone says something snippy. I know here in Austin, it doesn't happen often, but you'll be like a target without a mask. And someone will say, it's not like there's a pandemic going on, but they like quickly scurry while they say it. <laughs> and I'm usually like, excuse me, what did you say? I'm not confrontational or nasty, but I don't want to have a conversation with them at least because this little drive-by call out isn't, I'm not very fond of that strategy, but... It's, it's just important for us to get out there, do cool stuff, and we're about to hear some from someone that's done a lot of really cool stuff and is doing a lot of cool stuff one of us in this room. Do we have RFK there, Derek? We do. I think he's about to join us right now. So, uh, yeah. Thank you again, everybody, for being here. Thank you, John, for keeping it flowing while we're, we're being patient.
How's your, how's your crowd feeling over there in Austin? In Texas. What about Ziwa? The dueling crowds. All right. Well, hopefully everybody who's watching at home is cheering along as well and screaming in their living rooms and having a good time. Yeah. All right, Ramiro, are we ready for him? Not yet? Okay. Well, we're, we're flowing with the schedule. We still got doing, three Derek? four more speakers. I'm doing good, man. I'm excited. There's a little technical difficulties we're working through, but thankfully our crowd here is forgiving and understanding and appreciates that. So we've, we've still got RFK Jr. We've got Kelly Brogan. Uh, we've got Dolores Cahill. Chief Gray Eagle, who I'm really excited to, to present his information with you later. He's a, somebody that's a good friend of mine that we'll be sharing in a couple talks. And uh, RFK Jr. is going to drop some knowledge on us. I'm excited to see what he has to say because, like I was saying about the disinformation dozen, these folks are being banned essentially from the Internet. And we get to have them speak to us directly about solutions, not just about the problems, not just about everything else going on outside these walls, all this insane stuff happening, but about some solutions. And I know that he has lots of solutions in his mind. So we will bring him on in just a moment. And I, oh, I'll, I'll talk a little about this. Hey, if you guys are going to be here all week, anybody plan on staying here all week? I hope you stay here all week. We have a lot of stuff happening. For those of you who are in Austin, in Central Texas, I know that John has events planned. We've got yoga happening every morning here in uh, Nziwa. We're going to do some outings on Tuesday and Thursday night with Nathan. If you want to check out Nathan's Crystal Sound Bowl healing uh, events, we're going to have the premiere of my new documentary, The Pyramid of Power, Wednesday night as part of the, the screen here. Friday evening, we're going to have music. I'll be performing my first live set as uh, 33. I'm debuting some new music. I'm excited to do that. And uh, yeah, lots happening. But without further ado, let's go ahead and bring out RFK Jr. Make some noise for him, please. Yeah, everybody. Hey, thank you for joining us, uh, sir, and we appreciate your work. The floor is yours. Okay. Hey, will you get me a... Well, what do I... Um, I need a timer. Tell me when, when to shut up. What is it, 40 minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start by reading uh, the recent report by Pfizer to the FDA on the coronavirus vaccine. And I want to remind you that um, we all read that Pfizer's pre-licensing clinical trials showed efficacy rates of 95%. And the way that those trials were conducted is that they tested essentially, they gave 20,000 people the vaccine, 20,000 people the placebo, and then they waited till 164, 165 people got sick. And then they, um, they unblinded the study and they looked at how many people got sick in the vaccine group. In the vaccine group, there was only about 15 people sick. And in the, uh, in the placebo group, there was 150. And that's where they get their number of 95% or 90, 90%. The same thing happened with the Moderna vaccine. And, but now we have the actual numbers of what happened. And we've learned for the first time, many, many more people got sick than the ones that they counted in that group. 
reason they counted that particular group was those were the ones who were who got sick and who the researchers then decided to test with a PCR test. Oh, really around 3,400 people became sick with diseases that, with symptoms that the researchers suspected were COVID-19, but they were never tested. And so they were never included in the study. And what the British Medical Journal, Peter Doshi, who's the editor of the British Medical Journal, recently said is that when those when those numbers came out about what happened to the 3,400 people, they were much more evenly split between the vaccine group and the placebo group. So roughly half of them came to the vaccine group. Um, a little, slightly more than half came from the uh, from the vaccine group or from the placebo group. And the difference was really about 19% if you cast it in the best light possible. Oh, what the British Medical Journal says is that if you cast in the best light possible the clinical trials from Pfizer, and I'm going to read you the actual numbers in a second, at the, in its best light, that the Pfizer vaccine has about a 19% efficacy, not a 95%, a 19%. And that's relevant because all of us who are trying to make help make decisions for our grandparents, our parents, for elderly people, and even for our children, um, it's a very, very different calculation if the prophylaxis has a 19% efficacy versus having a 95% efficacy. And so Pfizer really deprived us by not telling us the truth in those early studies. They were able to pump up their their stock value and they were able to get these approvals and, um, and get the press all excited about this vaccine, but they were depriving the public of informed consent, of the information that is needed to make an informed choice. So this is the document that they submitted to Pfizer. The, this is the summary of what actually happened. And here's the summary. This may surprise you. It's a quotation. That's why I'm reading it, because I don't want to get this wrong. Among 3,410 total cases of suspected but unconfirmed COVID-19, by unconfirmed, they mean those were not the ones they gave PCR tests to. And what Peter, I'm going to stop for a second and tell you what Peter Doshi, the associate editor of the British Medical Journal, says is that there was a bias by the researchers who saw COVID, if they saw COVID immediately after the vaccine, they didn't know whether the vaccine was the placebo or the real vaccine, but if they saw an immediate reaction where somebody immediately got sick from COVID, they wrote that off as a vaccine reaction. They treated the person with Tylenol or aspirin or whatever, and they didn't count it and they didn't give them a PCR test. So they were exercising a researcher bias. Remember, the researchers worked for Pfizer, and they were reactive, or they worked for the National Institute of of, um, Allergic and Infectious Disease, which had a 
stake. She has a 50% ownership stake in the vaccine. And so there's a bias by both of the, by all of the researchers to try to get approval. And, um, and so they, t- they only gave PCR tests to the ones that it appears that they thought would confirm the, uh, the desired outcome, support the desired outcome for this study. So I'm going to start reading again, quote, among 3,410 total cases of suspected but unconfirmed COVID-19 in the overall history study population, 1,594 occurred in the vaccine group. So out of 3,400, 1,600 occurred in the vaccine group and 1,816, so that's essentially 1,800 occurred in the placebo group. So you had 1,600 in the vaccine group, 1,800 in the placebo group. And that's where the British Medical Journal got the 19% efficacy. Listen to this. Suspected COVID-19 cases that occurred within seven days after any vaccination were 409 in the vaccine group and 287 in the placebo group. So the vaccine group had about almost 40% more cases of COVID within seven days than the people who got the placebo. In other words, the vaccine was increasing the risk by 40% of getting COVID within seven days of getting the vaccine. Um, and the, the, the significant that result, by the way, is supported and fortified by what, by what we've seen in real life, which is that immediately after widespread vaccination by these two mRNA vaccines, you see a tremendous number of people getting COVID and a lot of them dying. dying. You actually see in virtually every country where there's been widespread vaccination within two weeks, after the vaccine program begins, you see a giant spike in deaths. And then the spike comes down and the immunity from the vaccine kicks in and you see people then who are protected, who appear to be protected. Many, many people are dying within two weeks of getting the vaccine. And what the, um, you know, what the supposition is, is that the vaccine in the first two weeks weakens your immune system and makes you more susceptible to the disease. And that's what um, Harvey Reich, in the interview that I did with him, who is the Yale epidemiologist and probably one of the world's top five experts on the structure of clinical trials, that's what he um, suggested. It says, overall, though, these data do not raise concern about the protocol of specified reporting of suspected or but unconfirmed COVID-19 cases could have massed significant adverse events that would have not otherwise been protected. Um, So what they're saying is don't worry about this. But, and what they did is they took those uh, 409 reactions and the 287 reactions of the placebo group and they removed them from the study, so they did not count them. And that may be where the 
efficacy, the 19% efficacy that we're seeing, um, a lot of that might have been a result of them getting rid of all these people who got vaccine reactions immediately after getting the vaccine or got supposed COVID immediately after getting the vaccine. This is something we need to worry about. We really don't know the numbers. We do not know the efficacy for this vaccine. And we have to say, based upon the evidence, that it has been deliberately obscured. It has been purposely kept from us. We're not being treated with the honesty that we need. And the the other problem is that those numbers, which we now know were false or falsified, were used to justify the emergency use authorization for these vaccines. So again, we have to ask ourselves, in judging the effectiveness, for example, of other early interventions like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, we need to judge it against the real numbers and not against the 95% numbers, which were faked. And then the other problem is because those falsifications were used to get emergency use authorizations, we're really, really reliant on the surveillance, the post-licensing surveillance system, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, VAERS, in order to be able to understand the real risk of these vaccines. we do The clinical trials at this point were so badly bungled that they tell us very little about vaccine safety. So we're really reliant. And this is what the regulators told us. They said, if we made a mistake by rushing these trials, and we will see it post-licensing, we're giving this to millions of people, and if there are many, many injuries, we will see those immediately, and we will be able to make adjustments, make course corrections, shift to a different vaccine, etc. And the problem is that the surveillance system is completely dysfunctional. The surveillance system, and I'm going to say many of you know this, is literally designed to fail. It is designed by HHS's own numbers. It is designed to miss 99% of vaccine, more than 99% of vaccine injuries, not 99% more. And I, the reason we know that is because this system has been criticized by, for many, many years, including by David Kessler, who was a surgeon general, um, who back in the 90s said, you know, we need a new system. This doesn't work. It's not capturing vaccine injuries. Then in 2010, CDC, under tremendous pressure, commissioned a study of the vaccine adverse event reporting system. And as you guys know, who are familiar with this system, the system is now based on voluntary reporting, which never works very well. And especially doesn't work for vaccine injuries because, number one, doctors who are responsible for reporting the injuries don't know what the injuries look like. They are told essentially by the CDC and by their medical schools, et cetera, that vaccine injuries don't exist. They're one in a million. And that people, you know, even the young doctors today will say, well, people are supposed to have autism at that age. They get it the same age that they got the vaccines. They get diabetes at the same age. They get vaccines, they get rheumatoid arthritis, and it's not from the vaccines. So don't worry about the seizures are natural. They're infant. They, the CDC, in fact, has renamed seizures infantile spasms 
to normalize them and to make doctors think that, oh, that's just a part of childhood, but it's not. In healthy populations, historically, children did not have seizures when they were little. We know what the chronic disease rate was among Americans when Tony Fauci came into uh, NIAID in 1968. The chronic disease rate among American children was 6%. That's HHS's own study. By 1986, the year the Vaccine Act was passed, that's about 18 years later, it had doubled to 11.8%. And by 2006, it had gone up more than doubled. It had quintupled to 54%. This is on Tony Fauci's watch. He is, he is the guy who's in charge of making sure we know where the chronic diseases are coming from and that, they, uh, that those exposures, whatever environmental exposures calling, causing them, can be identified and stopped. That is the mission of his agency. He has failed upward. He has been there for 50 years, and he has orchestrated and supervised this explosion in chronic disease among American children. And so um, the VAERS system, people were checking, you know, the the CDC, HHS, NIH, the Surgeon General were saying in 20, by 2010, we need a system that actually works. So CDC gave a million dollars to the Agency for Health um, for, for Healthcare Research Quality, AHRQ. It is one of 24 sub-agencies of HHS. CDC, NIH, and FDA are other sub-agencies. And AHRQ, they gave a million dollars to AHRQ and they said, we want you to design a system that works right now. You know, think about it. If you're a doctor and you have a mom come to you and you say to her, she needs these vaccines, the hepatitis B vaccine, the hip vaccine, the polio vaccine, and we're going to give them to you, your child all at once. And the mother says, well, isn't that a lot of vaccines? Could this hurt my child? The doctor says, no, it can't. It's good for them. It's going to save their life. The doctor believes this. The doctor pediatricians, we also know, make 50% of their money typically on average. And we've done articles on this showing exactly how it's broken down from giving vaccines. That doesn't mean they make the profit from the vaccine, but they make the profit from the wellness visits. And it's the guaranteed traffic upon which these offices rely. So they're also, their beliefs are fortified by their economic self-interest. And that's always dangerous. And so I'm not saying that these doctors are deliberately making children sick. I'm saying that there are many, many um, forces that are telling them they're doing the right thing. And by the way, you're going to make a lot of money doing it. So maybe we have blinders on about the injuries they're causing. So the mother comes and says, could this injure my child? The doctor says no. And then four days later, five days later, the mother says, you know, he had a fever when he went home. And he's had a seizure now. Could that be from the vaccines? And the doctor has, let's admit it, let's be honest, has an incentive to say, no, I didn't hurt your child. 
the thing that I said was going to help your child did not cause your child to have a seizure. And so, and so he's going to maybe say to the mother, no, that's not connected to the vaccine. And he's not going to report it. And it's a pain in the butt to report them. It takes time. And, you know, for people, we know many, many people who have tried, including a friend of mine, George Boris, who's a very world-famous plastic surgeon from Beverly Hills. His brother-in-law, two months ago, was um, suffered a heart attack immediately after getting the Pfizer vaccine. And George Boris tried to report it to bears, and he tried for six days, several times, and could not report it. So things are hard to report to VAERS. VAERS makes it difficult for you to report things and um, reporting injuries. So the, the doctors have many incentives to not report them. But plus, what if that child gets a, a mercury-laden or an aluminum-laden hepatitis B or flu shot? And then a year, a year later, there's many injuries that are vaccine injuries that have long diagnostic horizons. They have long incubation periods. There's cancers. There's autoimmune diseases. Uh, there's neurodevelopmental diseases and injuries that may not show up for a week or a month or even a year after you get vaccinated. What about food allergies? If the child develops food allergies when he's a year and a year and a half old, is the doctor going to say the reason he's got those food allergies is because of the hepatitis B vaccine that I gave that child two years ago? Unlikely. I would say that never happens. And because of that, vaccine injuries are not reported. And when AHRQ looked at and went to one HMO in 2010, and a million dollars. They spent three years on this study. They went to one HMO, which was the Harvard Pilgrim HMO up in Boston. And they looked at, they they were actually able to find out what the real rate of vaccine injury was. And then they combined it and they compared that to the amount of injuries that were reported. And what they found was that fewer, this is a quote from that report, it's called Lazarus, Anybody can look it up, 2010, Lazarus 2010. It's an HHS-funded study, CDC-funded study, and they found that fewer, quote, fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are reported. Oh, and CDC, NIH, the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Science, have all said that the VAERS system is no good for analyzing vaccine injuries. It's a worthless system. So AHRQ designed a public, a pilot program for a system that actually would work. And it was a machine counting system, an AR artificial intelligence system. And we got very, very good at building these systems and systems that could collect 100% of vaccine injuries. And here's how it works. You, the HMOs have all of your medical data. So they have every vaccine that you have ever taken down to the batch number. They also have a record of all the medical claims that you've made. So if you had a vaccine, a hip vaccine or whatever vaccine, and two years later you have food allergies or you have seizures or ASD or autism or narcolepsy or Tourette syndrome or rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes or eczema, 
they can now look at the entire landscape, your entire medical records for tens of thousands of people, 9 million people that you have in the vaccine safety data link, have all of those records for and You can look at those populations and do what they call cluster analyses. So you can see if a certain vaccine is associated with a certain impact or injury. And in doing that, you can collect, you can capture maybe 90, 95, 98% of vaccine injuries. And that's exactly what AHRQ, it, it created a pilot machine counting system and it analyzed all of the data from the Harvard Pilgrim HMO. And what they found was, number one, as I said, fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are reported. At that time, CDC was telling the public that serious vaccine injuries occurred one in a million people who got one in a million vaccines caused a serious injury. What the AHRQ study shows, and anybody can look this up again, it's called Lazarus 2010. It showed that and it showed that 2.6% of vaccines were causing injuries. That's about one out of every 40 people. And this is incidentally confirmed from, from the in the Gardasil studies and in the clinical trials for many other vaccines. Uh, the true injury rate is about one in 40 for serious injuries like autoimmune diseases, one in 40. That's, that is a lot smaller than one in a million. And they were very excited because the system worked so admirably. And well, when they reported their findings to HHS, HHS refused to CDC the CDC officials who were in charge of monitoring that study and being the liaison to the consultants refused to take phone calls from them. They, uh, they disappeared them. They went dark. How do we know this? Because if you read the Lazarus study, it says in at the end, the CDC officials who were responsible for monitoring this study were no longer available by telephone or any other mode of communication. So CDC literally went dark on them because they did not want to see, they did not want to know, they did not want the public to know that vaccines are not causing one in a million injuries or even one in 10,000. But for each vaccine, it's one in 40. And now we're giving our children 72 vaccines. Um, and the implications of that are really horrible. But coming back to COVID, what we know is that Tony Fauci has been talking about how prescient he and Bill Gates were that they had these kind of, they were kind of soothsayers. They were Cassandras. They were warning the world for year after year after year. They were warning them that this uh, this pandemic was coming. That it was inevitable. It was going to happen. It was only a question of when. And in fact, when Tony Fauci applied for the Moderna patent in 2019. He said, we're in a rush to get this patent because a pandemic is coming any day now. 
And that's in the patent application. The public can see that. And so and there's two things that I would say to you. One is a pandemic was not inevitable. In fact, we have not had a pandemic that killed a lot of people since since 1918, since the Spanish flu epidemic. And every time they talk to us about the next Spanish flu epidemic and how devastating it's going to be and you know how they warned us and all of this, the problem is this, that in 2008 or 2004, Tony Fauci did a study on the Spanish, oh no, it was 2008, I'm sorry. He did a study that he published in The Lancet that was an analysis of the Spanish flu epidemic. And what they did is during the Spanish flu epidemic, the soldiers and civilians who died, there were lung samples taken of those people and they're still preserved at NIH. And so you can go into the freezers at NIH and you can do work on those samples. And a group, a team that, Uh, was producing data for Tony Fauci, went and gathered hundreds and hundreds of those samples. And what they found was that every single sample they tested, hundreds of samples, that the people who died during the Spanish flu epidemic in 2018 were not dying of the flu. They were dying of bacterial, bacterial meningitis, and most of them were dying of bacterial pneumonia. And the significance of that is that those diseases are completely curable in three or four days by penicillin or other antibiotics. And so the idea that that could, and that, of course, those drugs were not available until 1947. But if the Spanish flu epidemic happened today, it would not kill 50 million people because we would be able to treat them with antibiotics. And if you look back in time, the infectious disease mortalities that were killing people in the uh, 1900s, in the, uh, in the 1800s, had largely disappeared by 1920, 1930. And they didn't come back. And the CDC did a study to try to figure out what had wiped out infectious disease. People were still getting infectious disease. For example, every child was getting measles. It was by 1963, the death rate from measles was one in 500,000. It's about the same time lifetime um, risk of getting shot by lightning. That year in 63, which is the year before they introduced the vaccine, there were 400 children who died in the United States out of a population of about 200 million people, 400 children died of of, um, of, of of measles. And but when they looked at who was dying, it was all, many of the kids were people, kid children with intellectual disabilities. And it turns out that most of them were severely malnourished. They were black children from the Mississippi Delta many of whom had intellectual disabilities because of malnutrition. And this was in 1963. Remember, this was before the war on poverty. 
before my father went to the Mississippi Delta and came back and created the Wix program and you know made sure the food stamps were available to abolish hunger in America. And people were still hungry. And that's what was killing them. And when they when the guy when the CDC and Johns Hopkins did a major study in 2010 on all the mortality and morbidity data, and you can look this study, I mean in 2000, and this study you can look up, it's called Geyer, G-U-Y-E-R. And if you put Geyer into Google and you put CDC and Johns Hopkins study Geyer et al. 22,000, John Hopkins, CDC, you will get this study. And what that study shows is they looked at what the reasons were why infectious disease mortalities had disappeared for peripheral fever, for measles, for whooping cough, for um, diphtheria, for typhus, for typhoid, for cholera, um, for polio, for smallpox, all of these diseases that used to kill a lot of people suddenly stopped killing people in the 20th and early 20th century. And what they, the finding of this study, and anybody can look it up, is that um, vaccines had almost nothing to do with the decline. Not only did vaccines have nothing to do with it, but even antibiotics had almost zero to do with it. Surgeries, which we were getting very good at already, had almost nothing to do with it. All medical interventions put together, according to that study and another study called McKinley and McKinley, which is a very, very famous study, used to be um, required reading in virtually all of the medical schools in our country until the mid-1970s, late 1970s. And I believe the study was from 1977. It's called McKinley and McKinley, and they actually quantify it. They say that vaccines, all medical interventions together, probably contributed less than 1% of that to that decline in infectious disease mortalities, which is one of the most significant events in the history of medicine. At most, they said, all medical interventions together accounted for 3.5% of the decline, probably less than 1%, at most, at very most, 3.5%. And the decline in disease mortality was such a an enormous um, phenomena. And what they said is, they said the same thing that CDC said, is the decline happened because of nutrition, because of sanitation, because of reductions in overcrowding. And, and so it was not the doctors who abolished uh, disease, more infectious disease mortalities. It was engineers. It was the people who, you know, built the roads that allowed us and the transportation system and the airplanes that allowed us to get oranges from California and Florida to Minnesota and to the and to Chicago. It was electric refrigerators. It was um, it was the prosperity in our country. It was clean water and chlorinated water. These were the things that ended the mortalities. And this actually became a crisis for CDC in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was going to shut down CDC. David Stockman, his budget director, wanted to shut it down because he said nobody's dying of infectious disease anymore. 
is it is a low it, it's you know the, the the things that were killing people were cancers and heart attacks and infectious disease was only killing a few thousand people a year and um, within CDC, there was memos saying we need to find an epidemic. We need to find a pandemic, essentially, to make ourselves relevant, to justify our existence. Gary Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize, got a hold of those memos and put a wonderful video on them, if you can ever look that up. But, you know, I found in the book that I'm about to publish, we have a lot of the, that information where there was just, there was terror in those agencies because they were going to be shut down because uh, infectious disease had essentially disappeared. Tony Fauci's agency was renamed so that it would have a role, which was allergic diseases, which they, at that point, included autoimmune diseases and other diseases which were on the rise. Um, but the infectious diseases really had stopped killing people in that part of history. And so the idea that a huge pandemic was going to come along any moment and wipe us out and that was inevitable was not true. Um, and that's one of the reasons that these questions about the Wuhan lab, about that actually hatching up a, you know, this pandemic micro, which we know they were doing. We know that they were deliberately doing gain-of-function studies to create pandemic superbugs that could cause pandemics that, that had um, enhanced virulence and enhanced transmissibility. We know they were doing that. That's not controversial. They, Tony Fauci was, was, was financing those studies all over the world uh, with Ralph Eric in North Carolina at Fort Detrick. Um, at uh, at Galveston, at the Galveston lab in the Netherlands. And ultimately, when President Obama, 300 scientists signed a petition in 2014 to Obama asking him, there were a number of lab escapes that year, and they signed a petition to Obama saying, please stop Tony Fauci from funding these studies. And President Obama passed a moratorium that year and ended it. Now we now know that Tony Fauci did not comply with the moratorium. He continued to fund these studies in North Carolina with his buddy um, uh, Ralph Barrick, and that he took the bulk of that funding and he shifted it to the Wuhan lab, which is run by the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party, and he began funding scientists over there through, you know, he said on TV the other day on Ran to Rand Paul. I never, we, I had never funded funded any of those studies, but he was, it was a loophole. He was being cute. He funded those studies, but he funded them through a, a grifter, an English grifter, a bioweapons expert and zoologist named Peter Dayzak, who runs Eco Health Alliance. And Fauci was giving millions of dollars to him to fund the study so that his fingerprints wouldn't be on them. And, you know, if you were Tony Fauci, put yourself in his position. He's been saying for 20 years that he's going to create a, uh, that we're going to have a, a pandemic and that he's the only one with the genius to, uh, to, to save us from it. But what was he actually doing to prepare us for that pandemic? Was he stockpiling masks? No, which he later said were necessary. 
was he stockpiling respirators, which at, at the beginning, he said, that's the first thing we need, respirators. But there was no stockpile. Was he... Um, was he stockpiling? Uh, was he was he developing? Was he fixing the air system? Which is the first thing you do if you knew a pandemic was coming. You would fix the broken part of the surveillance system, so that we would be able to know whether if you did develop a vaccine, that it would actually that it was actually doing more good than harm. He never fixed it. Wouldn't you have figured out, well, you know, there's going to be all of these seniors if we go into lockdown. There's going to be all these seniors in nursing homes. Um, How are we going to protect them? How are we going to make sure that seniors who are sick in hospitals and recover enough but are still infectious are not sent back into those nursing homes to infect everybody else in there? Wouldn't you think if you were planning for a pandemic, you would have done these things? I'll tell you the one thing that he did do. Did he stockpile aspirin or did he stockpile vitamin D? We know 85 to 95% of the people who, who have been hospitalized and who have died are vitamin D deficient. And Tony Fauci was asked on TV, surprised with the question, what are you yourself doing to protect yourself against COVID? He said, I'm eating vitamin D. Did he tell everybody else? Did he tell the rest of us? Did he tell every black person in this country? With vitamin D deficient, virtually the entire black population is vitamin D deficient, and that's where 25% of the deaths are. Did he say you need to uh, eat vitamin C, D, and here's how we're going to make sure that you have blood levels that are sufficient. Here's how much you take. Did he do any of that? Did he tell people stop eating so much sugar, try to lose some weight? And do all the things that we know, that, you know, of treating the comorbidities. No, it was none of that. Here's one of the things he did do in 2005. In his laboratory, he um, tests molecules against viruses. So they'll take coronaviruses, which they've been doing for years. They put them in a Petri dish. And then they put drops of ivermectin, of hydroxychloroquine, of any parasitics, of any virals of even chemotherapy drugs, put them in that lab dish and watch what happens to the coronavirus, see if it dies. And that's the beginning of developing drugs. You do those kind of tests first, and then you start farming those drugs out, do animal trials, and then you do phase one trials, and then you do phase two on larger and larger human populations. That's usually how you, you develop drugs. Well, in 2005, when people were very, very interested in coronavirus, I think that's my uh, my message to stop, to shut up. So somebody better come on and tell me to shut up or I'll go keep going for another five minutes. Um, in 2005, when people were worried about SARS and coronavirus, Tony Fauci did an experiment because they believed that hydroxychloroquine would help. The drug that was an antiviral that had been used for many purposes. It was known to be safe. It had been tested on billions and billions of people um, over 60 years as an essential medicine, you know, one of WHO's essential medicine. And so they decided to test it on coronavirus. And what they found was NIH found that it worked like a charm. 
that it not only was, and this is what the studies said, it not only works as a prophylaxis, but in other words, a preventative. So if you take it, you are unlikely to get coronavirus. But once you do get it, you take it in your early days, it will kill it. And what did what happened with that knowledge? Here's what happened. They never went to animal studies. They never went to phase one. What they did is that the minute that they knew that there was a coronavirus problem in Wuhan, somebody very powerful in France, where hydroxychloroquine was an over-the-counter medicine for decades, suddenly reclassified it as a class one poison. In Canada, the same thing, to make sure the public could not get a hold of it. All over Africa, people began going into villages, to drugstores and pharmacies and villages and buying up all the hydroxychloroquine and doctors report seeing it burned in bonfires on the outskirts of town. Tony Fauci allowed Sanofi Sanofi, the French company, that the drug company that was a vaccine maker, but it also makes hydroxychloroquine. He allowed them to donate hundreds of millions of dollars, their entire stock of hydroxychloroquine to the national stockpile. And am I... Am I supposed to get off now? Okay. And and then they shut down the stock stockpile so nobody could get a hold of it. Although this is long before Trump came out and said, you know, hydroxychloroquine works. It was already a giant movement. And then Bill Gates and Tony Fauci funded 20 studies that were designed to discredit hydroxychloroquine. And the Lancet, the highest gravitas journals, the Lancet, JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, all published those studies, three of the worst of those studies simultaneously. And what they did in those, they did many, many tricks in these studies that we're all familiar with. But what they did in those studies was the most horrendous thing yet. They gave people toxic doses, five times the lethal dose of hydroxychloroquine. Old people who were in hospitals to prove that it killed people. And in Brazil, the, the JAMA study that they did in Brazil, and th- those studies, by the way, this is what the most humiliating thing in the history of medical publishing, all of those studies had to be retracted within two weeks because it was such an outcry that they were about the fraud. Somebody very, very powerful arranged for those studies to be published simultaneously. In Brazil, they killed so many old people by giving them five times the lethal dose that Brazilian prosecutors are now prosecuting those researchers for homicide. Um, Tony Fauci, at the beginning of the pandemic, committed $48 billion to vaccines. And how much did he commit to therapeutics? Zero. The only antiviral that they spent money on was one that he and Bill Gates developed, remdesivir, which when they they give it to you, it has the same symptoms of COVID. It makes your kidney collapse. It destroys your pulmonary system. It makes breathing difficult. It lowers your blood oxygen. And it does nothing, nothing to help COVID. And yet they made that standard of care. So you're not allowed to get hydroxyl. FDA put on its website, it didn't just say we're not recommending it. It said it's poison. Don't use it. As a result of that, it was banned in 100 nations around the globe. 
people so that the pandemic would be prolonged, so that people would die, so that people would go into this, you know, agree to be locked down, agree to wear masks, agree to social distance, have their businesses closed, and they put the whole world on house arrest and imbued them with fear to inspire a kind of a Stockholm syndrome to make people fall in love with their captors and obey for their own survival. And you know that that's where they have us right now. And they are systematically dismantling democracy, our civil rights, they're censoring our speech. Um, and it's a frightening world that we're living in. I didn't mean to spend so much time on the uh, on this stuff, but anyway, I'm I'm uh, I'm really I'm being given the signal to shut up. So I'm really happy to be here with all of you, and I wish you the best luck. And I will see you all on the barricades. All right. All right, guys, give it up for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. one more time. Everybody who's listening at home, everybody here, getting our screen fixed out here. Uh, so we're going to have Kelly Brogan coming up shortly in just a moment. Before we do that, though, I know Ramiro wanted to talk a little bit about some of the projects he's got. And I just want to spend a moment or two to highlight some of the sponsors that did make this happen. This is not a free event for us. It costs a lot of time, money, blood, sweat, annoying the crap out of each other and trying to get over our egos to do something bigger than ourselves. And it takes a lot of time and effort to, to make that happen. So I do want to highlight, we mentioned it earlier, but there's a man named Michael. He runs a website called InnoScale, I-N-N-O scale.com. For anybody who has websites that looking for serving, hosting, Michael's been hosting my websites for free for 10 years because he believes in my message. He believes in the work. He hosts the Freedom Cell Network website. He hosts the Greater Re Reset website. And he's, he's just a great dude to, to know, especially because he's like-minded. So he's not somebody who's just going to hand your data over to the government if it ever came down to it. And that is InnoScale. The other thing that I would like to mention, well, actually, you want to talk about some of the volunteers? Give it up for Amiro again. Hey everyone. Yeah, this is, as Derek said, this is a huge collaborative effort. It spans continents. And I think the thing that really makes the Greater Reset special is it's all voluntary. People aren't doing this for money. They're just coming together because they want to make a difference. And so we've had our asses saved so many times from uh, people, you know, all around the world. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, my friends Penelope, Serge, and Philip for really kicking ass. Uh, they've been doing a lot of the updates behind the scenes for freedomcells.org. Uh, and answering the support emails and also making these beautiful graphics that you've been seeing, man. They've been pulling all-nighters, and I have a lot of respect for that. So, uh, yeah, um, another cool thing that I wanted to shout out was uh, we've actually come together with, you know, starting as volunteers and, and kind of banded together to provide more of these services for people. So we're seeing this huge rise and people that need an alternative content platform, but they don't know how to start, right? So um, right now we're working with Derek and also brands like The Greater Reset to stand these sites up. And they're all, everything's private, right? So it's kind of all in the family as we were, we work with InnoScale as well. And we have an agency called Above Agency. And if you're interested in having a site like this for yourself, having an office like this for yourself that isn't passing your data through a big technology company, which I'm going to be talking about later this week too, then do check us out. That's above-agency.com. And again, big thanks to the volunteers that were helping. Yep. 
One more round for Amiro. Definitely check out Above Agency. And uh, I'd like to mention one more project. And then we got Kelly Brogan ready for us. Um, I put out a, a book a couple years ago. It's actually like an online course. It's evolved into an online course. One of our other sponsors, partners, is Autonomy. Is anybody familiar with Richard Grove or heard him speak last time? Really awesome dude. He has the Autonomy. I mean, these guys are amazing. It's just a team of people. They're doing our volunteer work right now. They're helping sound check the speakers and just helping in so many ways. And they helped me create an online course. It's a nine-week online course based on my book that's called The Holistic Self-Assessment. For those of you who are in person, you can pick up a copy over there. And it's basically, as you're going to hear later this week during my talk, some of you know my story that I went to prison 15 years ago. Uh, I was addicted to drugs and dealing with depression and suicide attempts. And I had to go through a lot of you know, healing to, to get to where I am today. And this book is basically going through the steps that I took to go through that process. I believe that the more holistic we look at our lives, not just focusing on they, them, what are they up to, but what are we doing? What role are we playing in the Great Reset and pushing our world in a really scary direction? And how can we use our bodies, minds, and hearts to do something better? So the holistic self-assessment is just a real simple workbook. Each chapter has a, an exercise, and, and it's meant to be worked in like a workbook. But Autonomy helped me develop this online course as well. So if you want to check that out, we'll be posting the links to that on our website at thegreaterreset.org. And now, without further ado, guys, I'm really proud to introduce Kelly Brogan because if you do follow our channels on The Greater Reset Telegram or, or my work, The Conscious Resistance, you know that I launched a podcast after the last event, and it's just called The Activation. After 10 years, I got sick of focusing on just the daily news and the constant just, you know, it's there and it's important to talk about it, but I'm exhausted with it. I want to bring you guys solutions and people who are really working on these internal solutions as well. And Kelly Brogan is one of the one of the women, one of the people in this world who I think is doing that in an amazing way. She's also one of the disinformation dozen that we have here with us today. And I'm really excited for her to share her message. So without further ado, Kelly, the stage is all yours. All right. Give her a round of Thank you. It's truly an honor to be a part of this. And I have great intention to fire hose you with information for the next 40 minutes um, that hopefully will just remind you of what you already know about the reclamation process and specifically around the role of so-called mental illness. And you really teed me up there, Derek, because it is the hero's journey, the heroine's journey, home to the self. And we can get really waylaid when we have the wrong framework for the uh, sort of experience of adversity and challenge and struggle and suffering. So I hope to kind of offer you that. Um, I have some slides and I'm going to share my screen. Let's see. And get started. Okay. All right, so, okay. So my primary qualification for this particular discussion is that I am actually a doctor of the soul, which is the etymology of psychiatrist, believe it or not. And in my medical school uh, residency and internship fellowship training, I'm not sure that I heard the word soul even one time. Literally. And I wouldn't have been receptive to the concept as a staunch and really belligerent atheist myself. And now there's some deep poetry in my having had the opportunity to, you know, in some ways, midwife or, or doula, um, hundreds actually of patients through the process of personal reclamation and specifically through the dark night of that soul. So an important 
bit of context is that, you know, I'm American, so I'll speak from, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this perspective, but we, and of course the hegemony of American culture means that we all are exposed and in many ways oppressed by what it is that Americans define as, you know, the, the cultural dominant, uh, paradigm, but we don't have any context for personal initiation, right? As adolescents, as our souls begin to rattle the cage, what we experience emotionally, what's maybe even been handed down transgenerationally, we don't have a presentation of tools or that safe container by the elders, the crones, the the wise uh, folks that we might otherwise have had contact with, you know, in another context. And so when we begin to navigate these so-called negative emotions or challenges or experiences of adversity, it just feels bad. And it feels like something that we not only want to stop, but we're actually encouraged to suppress and and manage. And of course, what's available to us, you know, we know that many of us self-medicate, you know, with with work, with drugs, with alcohol, with sex. But what about medication? And the role of medication in the journey, you know, that so many uh, have taken through and around uh, and beneath and above their core essential self that they are here to embody does involve um, medication and specifically psychotropics. So I'm just going to touch on that a little bit today, but I want to talk a bit to, you know, my avatar. Who, who, who is this relevant for? And I would say it's specifically relevant for many who have um, never really fit in Right. Like if if you have experienced yourself as the black sheep of your family, um, if you've had, you know, the experience of being this kind of round peg trying to fit in the square hole of a capitalistic society. Uh, of course, these folks are often considered to be artists and bohemians and visionaries. And I have found that those who are specifically sensitive to what it is that's actually wrong. You know, Krishnamurti reportedly said, uh, you know, that it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. So what happens when you're not well adapted, right? What happens when your symptoms are an expression of your sensitivity, your rightful sensitivity to the many ways in which we are wrongly living? Well, in our dominant society, you are labeled, you are pathologized, and you are told that, you know, something is wrong with your brain, of course, uh, rather than you're being a sentinel or, you know, a so-called canary in the coal mine. In my um, privileged mentorship with Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, I uh, learned a lot about the the role of actually the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system in these types of folks, right? And he called them parasympathetic dominance and helped me to uh, design a protocol for really ritualized reclamation of their embodied health, you know, mind, soul, and, um, and body. And this particular kind of niche of folks that he called parasympathetic dominance are classically creative in the ways that we recognize as creative, right? So they have a lot of kind of um, original vision pouring through them. And they aren't easily confined to rules and regulations. They It doesn't appeal to them uh, the way it might to somebody like myself, for example, to have a kind of structured 
container within which to function. Uh, so these are the folks that are often diagnosed with so-called ADHD or depression or anxiety or even multiple chemical sensitivity, autoimmune conditions. Um, and these are less so the folks who are attracted to law or medicine and those more kind of uh, rigid frameworks. So I want to kind of break this down into three sections um, that I call get real, get well, and get free. The get real part is where I pull hundreds of scientific references to help disabuse you of any understanding that you might have around mental illness being a chemical imbalance or being a well-validated human pathology that we can interact with through pharmaceutical products. And I've written two books on this subject. If this interests you to really kind of learn uh, what I believe is to, you know, the truth with a capital T around uh, this paradigm, then, you know, there's a lot to, to kind of unlearn. Uh, specifically, I'll kind of throw out a couple of points, including the fact that in seven decades, there has not been a single valid human study that has demonstrated that depression, for example, although this also applies to so-called bipolar disorder, so-called schizophrenia, so-called ADHD, so-called generalized anxiety, you name it, is the result of a chemical imbalance. And a lot of this research has been uh, exploring persistently the role of serotonin in our mood to the extent that I find many, many holistic, integrative and functional medicine practitioners throwing around this idea that serotonin is like some happy chemical uh, and that is not actually based on any published literature. It's a meme. And there are so many memes that we have to deconstruct in the realm of, of mental health and so-called mental illness because we're dealing with these labels that are subjective impressionistic and predicated on normative cultural values, which I think we're seeing in this current moment, we don't all happen to share, right? And so when we're kind of trying to understand, am I bad or am I good? Whose eyes are we looking through? And the labels uh, in the psychiatric realm are really pattern recognition. So it's, um, it's, it's unfortunately a round table of old white men who have pharmaceutical ties that are determining what is going to represent human pathology. Uh, and they do, you know, they do this primarily in, in America with um, the collaboration of the pharmaceutical industry, deciding what is normative, what is not, you know, and it was not until the, uh, it was recently in the seventies that, you know, homosexuality was taken out of the big book which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's in its fifth iteration. It balloons in pages every single edition. And the, you know, you don't have to go too much farther than to recognize that the bereavement clause was taken out of this book quite recently in the last um, printing, which means that you have two weeks to kind of get over any major loss in your life before you're considered a candidate for medication treatment. So what is the messaging, the values, the principles, the, the beliefs, um, the morals? You know, what, what is conveyed through that kind of agreement that we make with allopathic medicine that we will experience our humanity through this lens of pathology and avoidance of, of struggle and really getting to know ourselves? Um, it's a powerful contract that can be broken. <laughs> so that's what we're here to talk about today. 
So when it comes to medication, again, this is a very lengthy topic um, that I've spent many, many years deconstructing because I myself was a passionate pill pusher, so much so that I specialized in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women psychotropic medications of all varieties because I thought, well, what are you going to do? Nothing? No, you're going to do what I've been taught to do, which is to help these women with medications that are better than standing by. Okay, so the the truth of these medications is quite extraordinary, though, and there have been many whistleblowers that have come before me whose footsteps I am walking in, people like Peter Bregan um, and David Healy and Irving Kirsch and Joanna Moncrief, and they have helped me and many others to understand that these medications ride in the study trial design, which, of course, is notoriously short, right? It's like four weeks, eight weeks, maybe 12 they ride what's called the, the active placebo effect. So when you have like your Aunt Joan telling you that Prozac saved her life, or maybe you feel that Prozac saved your life at one point, and what does that really mean? It probably means that it helped you to feel less, right? What was responsible for that? Was it a specific mechanism associated with the medication? Or was it the belief that you had in conjunction with the experience of side effects at the initiation of medication that unveiled this kind of inner pharmacopoeia that helped to shift you out of where you were. And what has been documented uh, through the exposure of all of the unpublished literature that conveniently sits in the file drawer in the pharmaceutical uh, cabinets is that more than 80% of what we are calling medication effect is actually so-called active placebo effect. The adverse effects associated with this medication are something that I have been screaming from the rooftops about for many years because I didn't know as a prescriber that these are the single most habit-forming medications, chemicals, or substances on the planet, in my opinion, and the opinion of many millions who have tried to discontinue these medications after even a mere two months of exposure. That these medications also have the capacity to induce violence to self and others in an intoxication state um, called akathisia. That is really a Russian roulette because people are not screened for whether or not you might be the person who has that kind of uh, alchemy, you know, with these medications. And we also aren't exposed to, you know, what are all of the untold side effects? So what happens is that you go on one of these medications, you develop a bunch of side effects, and there's a domino effect of other medications that seem to be required to help to mitigate um, those side effects. So if there's not a magic pill, I'm sorry to say <laughs> that there isn't, then what's the deal? You know, then what can we do? Are we just supposed to like grin and bear it or white knuckle it? And of course, most of you, I'm sure are aware, you know, that we got to go in, we've got to go in the cave. And so what is the deal with so-called illness? What is the deal with symptoms? And obviously I'm focusing on psychiatric symptoms, but I no longer see um, these specialties as being relevant because of, you know, as Derek said, the holistic perspective on personhood, on your humanity invokes this web of interconnectedness of all aspects of and dimensions of your bodily experience. And if you can shift into a perspective that says, actually the body never makes mistakes. It never makes mistakes. It is an exquisitely elegant technology 
perhaps the most there is, right? Uh, that is designed to translate your soul through your body for the awareness, recognition, acknowledgement, and processing of your mind, right? So then how do we see symptoms? Then what are symptoms? They are messages from you to you about you. And in that context, there's really no room for fear. It's just not, it's not something you have to suppress or be embarrassed that you're scared when you have, you know, uh, a cough or a fever or whatever. It's just that it's kind of no longer relevant because you are being invited to interact with your deepest self in the journey of self-discovery that we can call health, right? And so then you start to observe patterns of selfhood, patterns of self-expression. And very often the body is there to communicate that which we have not yet been ready to address or transform. And sometimes that involves traumas that we have been carrying in our tissues for many, many years, the energy of those stored emotions. I have you know, reason to believe that sometimes that's inherited, right? And it's not just through epigenetics, it's through you know, these, these lines of unfinished business that we have the opportunity, should we accept the invitation to finally transform. So, you know, there are many who speak to trauma in this way, but it's it's more than just a poor me story, right? So it's more than just a, a reification of that victimhood. Like, wow, I really am messed up. I really am damaged. I really am broken. You have no idea what I've been through. There's no recovering from that. I have had, again, the privileged um, opportunity myself to work with women who have, in my private practice, who have had some of the most heinous experiences of childhood trauma, you know, that you would imagine would handicap them for life. And that's where I've developed this concept that those canaries, right, those sensitive souls um, are here with a big, big gift. And the process of learning how to work with that energy to transmute it into personal power is uh, definitely um, not for the faint of heart, but if you have that kind of baggage, you're likely here to present that gift to all of us, to the world and to yourself. And the process of learning what self-ownership actually means is that you know reclamation process that often entails a death of the former self. So I'm very, very interested in you know what's sometimes called narrative medicine, in the story that we tell ourselves about the world. And I think it's never been more relevant than, you know, this great opportunity uh, that we have been presented in the past year plus to deeply examine whether we are telling a story of the world that is fundamentally a victim story. And I've said many times, I'll say it many times again, that I believe that victimhood is the only human pathology. It is the illusion that we are here to wake up from so that we can access that world creating power that is within each of us. And I don't say that like some kind of Hallmark card, you know, with unicorns and rainbows coming out the top. It's the truth. And the, the deep conditioning, the trance that we are under that tells us otherwise or speaks to us about, you know, inborn limitations around um, our human experience 
is our personal work to transform. And that's why, you know, there are slanderous, uh, defaming websites devoted to, you know, my so-called ableism. And it's true. There's always truth in criticism. It's true because I do believe that anyone has the capacity to heal literally anything. And I have seen it. We have an entire, you know, team of clinical volunteers that has been dedicated to publishing history making cases of resolution of chronic illness, you know, ranging from lupus to Graves disease to chronic migraines to recidivistic schizophrenia, things that should never be healable, according to our dominant understanding, which even if you believe in natural medicine, it seeps in there. It's it's like tentacles have gotten in there and you have the power to pull them out and to clear your slate. But it starts with really owning what story you're telling and how much you need to still be in that trauma vibration of the child who is scared of the bad parent that is ultimately uh, there to withhold love from you, right? Do you need love? Do you need that bad parent any longer? Or can you step truly into sovereignty? So right now, of course, it's part of the social engineering that we are in the midst of that we're being polarized, right? In the dialectic and, you know, There's some truth to the camp that we fall into. There's some truth within us that is resonant. And that doesn't mean that there's ever going to be freedom, obviously, you know, through the warring of these camps. But it does mean that it's an opportunity for you to really look at, you know, what do you believe about health when it gets scary, right? And, And what do you believe about the most salient aspects of this human experience, Do you believe that we live in fundamentally a random universe um, predicated on weakness and vulnerability and danger and that the best you can do in this life is to take, you know, precautions and to, you know, kind of worship at the altar of safety the way that, you know, again, the seeming dominant culture has encouraged us to, or are you kind of here to see what's up on this planet, in this body, and to recognize that there is deep personal meaning in all that you experience because you are the one narrating the experience of what you're experiencing. And it's funny because in my conventional psychiatric training, that is a psychotic symptom. Literally, it's called referential thinking. Sometimes it's called magical thinking. This idea that there is meaning for you in the objective universe is, is pathologized in allopathic medicine, uh, probably for good reason, because it is fundamentally a threat to the entire model. Okay, so where do we begin, right? If we inform ourselves and we are turned on by this liberating information that says, hey, we weren't told the whole truth about the medication model. We weren't told the whole truth about the diagnostic model. I understand there's something here for me. What the hell do I do, right? So I am a believer that it begins with a very powerful experience of ritualized self-care. And it's not going to work if it's like a little juice cleanse or, you know, you got that, those, uh, you know, that EMF blocker on your cell phone or whatever. It has to be so disruptive to your, you know, kind of automatic operating system that you your nervous system, your soul, all aspects of you are put on alert that change is a coming, right? And I have found that the most powerful way to do that 
is to start with personal self-care and specifically with this intention to bring your body into alignment, right? Because you can start your healing journey through, you know, uh, a silent retreat, through an essential oils course. I mean, you can start it in myriad ways. Of course, my bias is a kind of Maslow's hierarchy that says, you know, let's first start with the body because there's a lot of low hanging fruit that can help empower you on what honestly is the much more challenging leg of the journey, which is emotional self-mastery, psychological personal command, and of course, spiritual transformation. That takes a lot of energy. And if you have a comfortable body within which to navigate those waters, it's a gift you can give yourself. So, you know, I have found in my practice that there were several so-called psychiatric pretenders. That's what I call them, right? Because I noted that these patients had been diagnosed with psychiatric pathology when really what they had was a physiologic imbalance, right? I, really what they had was, you know, a single nutrient deficiency that had been going on for a long time because of a wrong diet, like a B12 deficiency, right? What they really had was hypothyroidism, which is something I was personally diagnosed with, you know, back when my awakening process started. And so I, I had intimate access, you know, to how relevant uh, thyroid function is to what we call mood, cognition and behavior, right? It might be that you have gluten or dairy intolerance and that those proteins are neuroinflammatory to you and, and they're processed almost 100% of the time anyway. So how about, you know, you refine your diet so that you are not exposing yourself to, you know, that kind of assault. It might be that, you know, the, the sugar load, including in the form of processed flour, that most of us consume in pretty much all the products that we buy uh, is just not working for you. And there's nothing wrong with your body when your body says, you know, here it, it sets off the alarms an hour and a half after you have a bagel, right? And you feel anxious and, you know, nauseous and lightheaded and, and foggy, or you have insomnia, right? So if we can stabilize your system, we can send a signal of safety, then you can start your journey at that point, because that's really when it begins. Um, that journey of recognizing that the old you is, is done. So I want to share just for purposes of, of inspiration, a little teeny video about what is possible, because I, I passionately believe that if you know what is possible, you can orient your intentions around that possibility. So if you know that it's possible to heal in radical ways, then you won't, what we, what we tend to do is make ourselves the carve out. No, that won't work for me or my situation is different. You won't do that. You can't do that as easily because you know that that field already exists. You have the power within yourself to heal through changing your lifestyle and treating yourself with compassion. Today, I am completely happy. I'm completely healthy. I'm more vibrant than I've ever been. I am on a new career path. It's just been totally miraculous. Like, no one can believe it. No one can believe it. And he said, you no longer have glucose. I felt so different after taking all of that on my diet. I mean, I consider it miraculous. You know, I don't have migraines anymore. Um, I don't have vertigo anymore. To me, this is just the beginning. I was the worst of the worst. And it, it, I feel like if I can come back from that, then, then everyone has help. I had not had a good night's sleep in years, perhaps, as I became 
aware of this layer of anxiety that I was uh, carrying with me everywhere, I could sleep. You have the power within you. All right. So then what happens? I love that video. I have like a, a much longer one that uh, induces tears in me every time. So I spared myself that with the short one minute. But what happens after you engage, you know, in, in my approach, in my protocol, it's a, it's a one month, right? Fierce commitment, like no bullshit, no cheating, <laughs> exercise of discipline, the power of your choice so that you have nothing to focus on for that month other than fierce awareness of your daily choices and aligning those choices with what I have discovered to be one of the you know templated options anyway um, for this ritualized practice of bodily reclamation. Uh, the An important caveat is that the nutritional aspects of my approach are predicated on my mentor's work, which largely suggested that there were 12 different, you know, evolutionary diets, so to speak, um, that developed in different niches in the world. And that the folks who are most likely to be diagnosed with psychiatric conditions, which honestly, at the current moment is, <laughs> is encompassing more and more of us, um, are those who can primarily balance themselves through the incorporation of animal foods in their diet. So, you know, for many, many years, that was the protocol that I, you know, I used in my practice and encouraged. And that's the protocol that I have data for. However, I do believe that we all have the grand opportunity to transform our relationship to nutrition over time. And that you can go from that portal to, you know, breatharianism. You can go from that portal to vegetarian or veganism as you come into contact with your inner compass, um, that balancing the nervous system through the lens of autonomic uh, reclamation, in my opinion, is an essential first step. And for reasons that may even involve the borrowing of prana, you know, from these, these animals um, that have you know, given their lives is seemingly an important part of this process. Because I would say the vast majority of those who have come to me uh, in practice, we're already eating vegan or vegetarian and ended up on multiple medications and, and struggling. And so I have come to wonder, wow, does it require a certain amount of trauma healing for you to, to healthfully access um, the field of a truly plant-based diet and live in that space of, you know, really divine relationship to the natural world, which I certainly ethically and uh, morally myself am aligned with. So what happens after you engage that process of, you know, detox, contemplative practice and nutrition and conscious consumerism in this one month is that you begin to sort of develop an awareness of how you have been, no pun intended, wearing this mask for probably decades and it's slipping. So what are you going to do? You're going to fasten it on tighter, right? And just continue to live that life that is now exposed to your own awareness as being out of alignment, right? Your job, maybe your partnership, maybe your friends, maybe where it is that you're living, maybe your relationship to your family of origin, or are you going to let it drop? And this is where the real commitment begins, because it is a commitment to personal awareness of the ways in which you get scared. 
So what makes me scared is different than what makes you scared. And what makes me scared in my life on my own is different than what makes me scared in my life with a partner um, or in community, right? And so understanding those programs and those defenses and recognizing when it is that they're activated is the most critical part of resolving victimhood, which is the most critical part of self-ownership and personal sovereignty. In my opinion, you can, you know, engage common law, you can get rid of your cell phone, you can grow your own food, you can do all that. But if you are still living in an easily triggered, emotionally unstable victim consciousness, you will never feel free. That behavior will get you nowhere because it's an inside job of developing intimacy with all of those aspects of yourself that you as an adult have parroted from your own childhood belong in the catacombs. So you're the one now holding yourself hostage, right? And you are the one who can let yourself out, who can set yourself free, right? So how is it that we are blaming? How is it that we are finger pointing? How is it that we are outsourcing our responsibility? How is it that we have given up, right? Assuming that, that childlike helplessness. And this is very, very relevant to our interaction with the medical system. No wonder they've been able to pull off this incredible PSYOP. It's like the most incredible, you know, Broadway performance of all time. Why? Because we are entrapped in the victim illusion and we are, are easily captured by allopathic medicines, victim theories of health, right? Germ theory being chief among them, in, of course, in the, in the current uh, climate, but it also applies to all of these other, um, you know, sort of approaches to understanding illness. So if we're going to get to know ourselves, you know, the, the phraseology that, that many of us are using um, relates to this kind of like inner little kid, right, who has the tantrums. And sometimes if you're like me, your tantrums are so buried that you don't even know they're happening. Right. When I get afraid, my defenses are so well honed that I'll just feel like I need to write an email or I just feel like I need to send that text or figure out what my opinion is on something. Right. And you may also be somebody who doesn't have it well buried. Right. And so when you get afraid, you get super emotional and, you know, hysterical and volatile um, and you lose control. You lose self-possession. You can't command that adult witness consciousness to take the wheel. And instead you give the wheel of the car to your tantruming toddler who's in the back seat, right? So when we have this kind of inner languaging, which is accessible to us, you know, through, through obviously some um, skilled psychotherapy, but even just journaling, right? So even just that process of writing cathartically, um, you might get to that little kid inside who's saying, you know, like my mine often says, like, why do you treat me this way, right? Stop treating me this way. Or it's not fair. Or why me? Or this always happens. Or she's wrong. Or he's wrong. Or you know, no one's ever there for me. That's another one of mine. <laughs> you know, or I'm not enough. Or I'm too much. Or nobody loves me. Uh, you know, it, the list goes on and on and on. And these, it's always very simple language, right? So your child does not, your child self does not speak in, you know, narrative prosetry. She or he speaks in these simple words. And you would be, if you haven't, you know, gone looking, you would be shocked 
to see what kind of adult behaviors stem from these simple beliefs, right? So how do we have the need to be right? How do we have the need to help, right? How are we engaging in that notorious triangle of the persecutor, the savior, and the victim, right? So wherever there is victimhood, there is that triangle, right? So you may be, as you know, I often find myself in the savior arm of, you know, that, that triangle, but in there, it, even in the savior psychology is a belief in the victim who needs to be saved, right? So how can we just exit the whole triangle? How is that possible? I do believe that we are being invited again by the current conditions to move through in not only our relationship to government and dominant culture, but in every, I mean, I can't be the only one going through this, in every single relationship in our lives, every single one, including in, you know, our relationship to entities and systems, um, you know, to, to commerce, we are being asked invited to look at the ways in which we have either idealized, right, which is the compliant energy. It's the energy that doesn't see all of the elements that are inconsistent with your projected belief about someone or something, right? It's the, it's the, I will die without this kind of energy of merger, right? Or vilified. Because once you've had a rupture of trust, once you've kind of seen something you can't unsee, which for many of my patients, for example, happened when, you know, they, they could no longer ignore that the medical system was a vector of abuse. Then sometimes what happens is you just flip to the other side of vilifying, right, of defiance, of fighting that energy that you're still empowering. And I'm guessing most of us have been there. I still struggle with this on a daily basis of judging, blaming, condemning, and vilifying that more, more empowered authority that I feel owes me a certain kind of grace, a certain kind of care, and a certain kind of, you know, treatment. But what does sovereignty look like? Because it's not something, again, that you can just decide to engage I believe it, it comes from working through all of this self-intimacy after you have that bedrock of physical healing under your feet. And then you can start to touch little spaces where you recognize, wow, I don't need that marriage. Wow, I don't need that job. Wow, I don't need that cell phone. I don't need those McDonald's fries, you know? And all of those tethers of dependency and attachment just start to pop and you find that something you thought or someone you thought you couldn't live without, you recognize you're already okay. And you can begin to develop a relationship to this inner reservoir of love that's already there. And the illusion, the childlike illusion that you need it from someone else, from someone outside yourself. It's different than saying, it's not like a fuck you, I don't need you. It's not that. It is a very peaceful, calm state of acceptance of what already is because you don't need anything to change in order for you to be okay. And that doesn't mean you're not going to go out and hold that beautiful vision of what can be. 
And it doesn't mean you're not going to acknowledge and bring awareness to what is wrong, right? Or engage that reclamation of morality that I do think that we are here to, to engage. It simply is a, a nod to the inner state that you begin to occupy. And then experiences like anxiety, right? When it's not blood sugar imbalance or medication side effect or whatever else, they are, this experience of anxiety, for example, is revealed to be a persistent state of seeking something outside yourself that's already in there, right? So this work is, I'm a big believer in women's groups and men's groups, right? And, and that this work is deeply facilitated um, by same gender work um, and that the community field is really only in high integrity when every single person is committed to doing that work. And then there's also this understanding that there's certain kind of remembrance that's available through, you know, women's work or men's work. Um, because otherwise, you know, I've had the experience of projecting idealization onto a community or onto a group and then beginning to feel like, well, I can't live without this. I can't raise my children safely without this. No, it's also not true. Right. And and again, that's not to paint this like lonely mercenary path. It's quite the opposite. It's just accessing love and a field of love that is not control based. Because if I am dependent emotionally on someone or some group or something outside myself, I will need it to conform to my expectations in order for me to feel safe. So here are, you know, just some of the so-called travel tips. I mean, there's so, 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 so many tools, but this is kind of just to give you a feel for what I'm talking about, right? So how do we um, begin to explore this foundational kind of acceptance, kind of yes to what is that doesn't violate our no, right? So it's both are there, right? No, this is not this is not acceptable to me, can coexist with, and this is what's happening right now, right? How can you begin to practice self-awareness so that when you express, feel, or, you know, otherwise generate, you know, judgmental thoughts, how can you begin to reflexively look inside to see where am I holding that, right? So a practice that I've engaged in the past year and a half is to really, really, really get honest with myself about the places in my life, in my work, in my mothering, where I am holding a totalitarian authoritarian energy. And if I want to live in a non-hierarchical world, well, it starts with me, right? And so how can I get real about that finger I'm pointing, you know, at, at the system, at the government, at the deep state, at whatever um, it is that I'm, you know, not in a good mood to appreciate in a particular day, right? So what does self-soothing look like to you? Again, when your nervous system is balanced, self-soothing is a lot easier. It's a lot more available, right? So then what does it look like? Does it look like a breathing practice? Does it look like, you know, a journaling practice? Does it look like screaming into a pillow? Does it look like, you know, putting your feet on the soil? How can you develop a go-to so that whenever you feel that heart racing, whenever you feel that fear, whenever you feel that old pattern of your defenses cropping up, you know, what can you remember to do to re reclaim uh, yourself in that moment and to command your nervous system, 
right? How can we make room to explore simply feeling? Because what's what's really wild to me is to learn that feeling is actually just, it's literally energetic sensations in different parts of the body. It's the storying around the feelings, transforming them into emotions so that there's a behavior associated with mitigating um, that the pain induced by the story around those feelings that really gets us into trouble. So how can we simply sit with the self and learn what that expresses like in our own body? How can you speak your truth, right? Develop the courage to speak your truth, but not need someone to change because of it, right? What does that feel like? What does it feel like? What do the words feel like coming out of your mouth when you don't really need anyone to agree with you? Uh, you don't need anyone to see your perspective and you just kind of sit in the ownership of it, right? And how can you really examine the landscape of your life so that you can appreciate the places in which you have more integrating to do um, where you're really walking the walk. And I'm going to end with uh, a quote from my mentor that is uh, prescient. You know, this was from, I believe, 2014. At that time, he told me we have 12 years uh, until the big shift. So take that, you know, with whatever you'd like to. But he wrote me this in just a casual email. And he said, we are in times of trouble to be followed by the light of peace, the calm of hope realized, the transcendence of truth. Not now, not yet, but soon. We are in the Santalia, the Greek term for the consummation of the ages, a time of confusion, political strife, hatred of truth, governmental oppression, and the rise toward one world dictatorship. Then comes the destruction of truth's enemies, the restoration of the earth and recognition for those that gallantly stood firm for the truth and its always righteous application. So do not despair. It isn't necessary to do so. The plan is falling into place. These times are but the birth pangs of the glorious world that will follow. All right, y'all. That's what I got for you. It's been a pleasure and I'm really, really honored, you know, to be a part of this, this community and to really focus our energy on the change that we want to see in the world. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, Ramiro, will you show the audience real quick and we'll give her one more round of applause, visual and aural, A-U-R-A-L, aural, aural, back in Texas, y'all. All right. That's right. Just give it up one more time for Kelly. Woo! Wow. That was great. Okay. I have a couple little housekeeping things for the uh, Central Texas audience here and for everyone to watch along all across the world. We are doing a raffle. You can get give it up for raffles. Raffles are great, right? Get that gambling urge met. It's all for a good cause. The tickets are $1 a piece. We'll be doing one every single day this week. So I'm not going to collect the money now. Don't go throwing all your no dollar dances up here now. That's That's for the after party. Speaking of the after party, we had to call a last minute audible, so we won't be going down to Erica's today. The after party is going to be right here. So we do have a keg, a Shiner Bach. 
Woo! Texas. I don't drink, but I am sipping on my Kratom over there, that's for sure. So uh, stick around. Actually, you can go. We are going to have food, but you can go visit the town, go check stuff out, enjoy yourself. And then we'll be back for 630 for the after party. And again, the raffle tickets are here. Please visit the Agora. Uh, Before we bring our next guest, I just wanted to reflect a little on what Kelly had to say. Um, Wow, that was really powerful. And the whole victim empowerment thing is just so critical if we are to find success in our lives and uh, just really soak all that up. Try to develop that consciousness to see when it is a screaming, hurting inner child. And my biggest tip to add on to that is to go easy on yourself because it doesn't help when we slip up or when you raise your voice at your kids. I never do that, of course, but uh, um, when you slip up, it's really good to be gentle and forgiving with yourself because it makes things a lot easier. But before we go on any further, we do have a birthday lady in the audience. So I wanted to bring up Sinead real quick. She is the proprietor of this amazing establishment, and we are super grateful that they allowed us to host host our event here. So happy birthday, Sinead. We're going to do the birthday song real quick. Ready? One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Sinead. Happy birthday to you. All right, we got something for you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Not here. No, we got to move on to the next speaker. Thank you so much, Sinead. Thanks for having us. All right. Shout out to Rita Quinn, too. We're going to bring her up later, maybe on another day, and recognize her. She has really done a whole lot to make this local event successful. Thank you so much, Rita. All righty. Okay, the friends down there in Ziwataneho, we're ready to rock and roll. Uh-oh. So. All right, guys, let's go. All right. <laughs> oh, back to Joe. All right, so they're going to figure out uh, what's going on down there. He in uh, Zihuatanejo, Mexico. I'm just going to fill some time. Thankfully, this comes naturally to me, so we're not going to get uneasy or anxious, chilling like a villain. Um, yeah, that reflection. Uh, wait, we're back. We got a major echo. Something changed on your audio. All right, guys. We're going to go to our next speaker. I'm not sure why. I'm going to introduce Ray. Sorry, John. Go ahead and take it.
Is that me? Am I there? We are. I don't know if my phone's going to act right here. We couldn't get it on the laptop, but thank you. Trying to get this situated a little bit. Sorry about that. I'm sorry for late getting on here. Maybe you want to try plugging your headphones real quick. Not sure your sound's not I don't have any headphones. I'm sorry. Is there no sound? Sorry about that. Anything there? Microphone? Hello? I can't tell. I can't hear anyone else either. There you hear me? I can barely hear you. I get a lot of echo. I'm still not hearing anybody. You can go ahead. Sorry. You want me just to share? Go ahead and speak and everyone can hear me. I uh, just want to say thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. Uh, I want to thank Derek and his companion Miriam for asking me to speak to share some things today. Um, hope everyone can hear me for the break free and the greater reset. Um, I want to thank all those that are speaking today and all those that are awake and trying to share some information and share some stories and experiences we're all having at this time. Um, first off, I have to say in our language um, to acknowledge myself to everything, the universe, my grandfathers, my grand grandparents, uh, I want to ask their permission to speak and uh, be respectful of them for the ancestors, creator, creation, and um, just speak from a humble heart today with, you know, I'm, I don't do this to compete with anyone or anything today just that we share what, we, what we've learned and while we're here. So uh, bear with me, I'm at home, I'm in my element. I've got a few things with me today and brother said to share something about the mind, the heart, and the body and the spirit. Well, as we all feel mother earth uh, and what she's going through uh, this purification we're all going through. Uh, our sacred mind uh, is being tested. We're being challenged in many ways uh, through our consciousness. So with, with the earth, with Mother Earth, she has a consciousness. So in today's times, we as the human being, the two-legged, a lot of times we only think of ourselves. 
we think of just the human being and the way and the knowledge or the learning or uh, the understanding. But indigenous way, we were taught from when we're born to understand our first mother is Mother Earth. Um, so this consciousness, um, we have it, and we're we're having the struggles today with all of these things going on to balance it all, to keep it all in order the best way we know how. But a lot of it is through man's way, uh, the human being, and what we're being shown or what we're being taught and uh, educated on. Um, Mother Earth is the great university. She is the great cathedral. It's right outside our door. It's right outside uh, waiting for us. But we, we've been learning through these other ways. So sitting with our sacred mind and, and learning to awaken it in a better way, um, in a purer way, to to meditate to listen to go within it's going to help us with these energies it's going to help us with this time of change we are in the um we're in the moon now of the butterfly full moon is here and it's the universal law of change and in that teaching it says be like the child again in mother's garden caretake of the earth and the sky so before i be even began i was setting up and i was showing derek preparing this and, and smudging and getting ready to speak four deer came out and stood right here at my garden in the back and uh, they don't ever come this time of day they never show up this time of day it's always early morning or late evening Four of them stood out here with me. So that's a good sign that we were in connection with the things that, that we need help with. Uh, the deer clan, the deer nation can help with our minds. Uh, a lot of times in our ceremonies, we sing a song for the deer, na deer nation <clears throat> to unwind our mind. We get so wound up today in today's time to calm the mind because it can be our greatest weakness sometimes to go from the mind to the heart. Your sacred heart um, and the heartbeat. We were taught in our indigenous ways and in our culture, the heartbeat. What is the first thing that we all hear when we're conceived? What is the first sound? We're in the womb. It is the heartbeat of your mother. This is the same thing that we should hear while we're walking upon Mother Earth is her heartbeat. It's very sacred. So our drums and our instruments and our uh, musical <clears throat> plays that part. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that sacred heartbeat. so that we can understand that vibration, understand that communication, understand this connection 
that we all have. So when we go into the lodge and we go into the womb, <clears throat> we go back to that place. We go back to this <clears throat> space to understand the medicine of the mind, the sacred mind, the medicine of the heart and the heartbeat. So that how we walk upon Mother Earth, we can feel and we can think and, and say these things from the heart to share with our relatives, to share the heartbeat. When we sing these songs, they're, they're as old as time that began. So I've learned, I've learned these ceremonial things because the Choctaw people, we, we've kind of lost a lot of our traditional ways, original and ancient songs and ceremonies and so creator creation the spirit led me to uh, our relatives our brothers the dakota lakota people so i've learned a lot of what uh, they have done and learned and kept going and, and preserved so we do this we do the sweat lodge and we do the sun nets and the vision quest to get back to somewhat is natural natural way this, this heartbeat is very important because um, it helps to bring the understanding that we all need who we are. Why am I here and where am I going? We learn that through here. Um, so again, sacred consciousness, the mind for Mother Earth has a consciousness. We must listen. The heartbeat, we must feel and be in harmony with that. The sacred body we have, that we take care of our bodies, we take care of these things today to be better, to be healthier, to be uh, aligned with everything that's happening. Her body, and her body is going through a lot. We've put it through a lot today in today's times, over time, so. Through all the influences that we have the human being have made upon mother earth she's she's very tired she's getting tired and now we're starting to see and feel and hear her speak she has a voice and she has a way to speak we're just not listening very well we're all children here and we're not listening very well so we need to listen again this, these global energies and this shift that we're having, just what we want, what we're talking about today, the reset. We need to help her reset because she's purifying and she can, she doesn't need us. We need her because she provides everything every day, air, fire, earth, and water. Those four elements, without one of them, none of us will survive. If one goes away. It's going to be difficult. So her body is, and, and she's speaking through the changes, through the earthquakes, through the volcanoes, through all these things that are starting to move and change and wake up that way too. Along our path upon her, learning to get back to as good harmony as we can learning to get back to taking care of one another, looking out for one another. Uh, even growing up, we always said, do your good deed 
What's your good deed today? What can I do? I can't fix it all, but I can do my part. Where's my part? Where, where do I need to help out? I can't help it all, but I can do my part. Who's the brother or the sister I got to help today? How do we do that? And we can, we, you'll know because it's within when you feel it, when you, when you understand it, you know it, you'll help out. Um, our sacred spirit, everyone has this spirit. The source. In our language, we say Chitoka Kaya. The source of everything that is alive has spirit, this energy, this frequency. It's all around. It's all the time. There is no, it doesn't turn off or turn back on. It's all the time. It's consistent. It's constant. And Mother Earth spirit, the light is dim now. It used to be really bright. She used to be really bright. Now she's really dim. She's wobbling some. She's spinning and she's wobbling. She's even, even they say satellite pictures, she's not round. She's kind of like this because she's, so she's kind of shifting in another way. But it's up to us too to help out, to help her out. That spiritual side, when we meditate, when we go into ceremonies and we go into our rituals, we go in, is to not just think of ourselves. It's to think of her, the spirit of her, the energy of her, and the love that she she gives every day, all the time, constantly. So all of these things are happening. I've been very fortunate and very blessed to be able to learn these things in a short amount of time that I've been here. Um, here on my grandfather's land and we, we, we do the ceremonies and I'll see Derek soon. I know he's looking forward and Miriam are looking forward to it. Um, the thing that has really been coming to me and I see the I see what goes on with the people and I try to keep up with I'm not very technical. Obviously, we're not getting to where we was, but um, what I've been seeing and I watch and I learn from everything and everyone is this disconnect from the earth. Because we're wearing our shoes, we're on pavement, we're on asphalt, we're on concrete, we're in buildings. But we got to get back outside. We got to be with the trees and we got to plant more trees. That's a, that's one of my projects that I'm trying to work with a friend of mine that's going to be here at the end of the week. And I want to share a little bit of his story before I go. Um, I also want to share, because we sing songs. And these songs come from a long time ago but they're a gift they're a blessing i also want to share this uh, the sacred stone i don't find them they find me this is something that was brought through a choctaw brother of mine long ago and he's asked me to learn about it 
So I took it through ceremonies up north with our relatives and our brothers. And in the ceremony, this grandfather came. And he said, it's not a weapon. Everyone looks at it and says, oh, it's a hatchet. And yeah, it's got that style. And it's not a, it's not a weapon. It's not to hurt anyone. It's a, it's a counseling stone. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you bring people together, you counsel and you talk and you share your stories. You share your experiences. You share your good times and you share your hardships. That's how we become relatives. That's how we become family. <coughs> Again, <clears throat> I'm thankful to be asked to share. I'm honored to help in this way. Um, <clears throat> the thing that I was going to share that has been coming to me the most, and I've always wondered what I tell anyone, what I share it with anyone, because this is what I see. We have a lot of information. Wonderful things people are sharing, going and changing and shifting and rising and conscious and beauty and the whole love. We want to love everything. But what's been coming to me is we need to cry so we don't we have to cry mother earth is crying and i know we we always say let's get on the earth and let's pray let's have a national day of prayer let's have a world prayer let's have all these things and i just see the people angry and hurting and Hurting one another. We're hurting each other. We, we need a day of tears, crying. And there's a song. I'm going to try to sing it for you. <laughs> Hopefully I can get through it all. So I guess I have time. Thank you to the relatives. Thank you for those that have kept these songs going and they share with us and for the, the nation that uh, this comes from. If you feel the need to shed some tears, shed for your relatives, for your families, for this earth family, 
It is, I'm great ego. I'm thankful today. I'm thankful to share with my relatives all over Mother Earth. I send blessings to all of you. Um, we just, we have to, well, we're going to need to work on uh, helping one another, helping getting back to um, sharing our tears, but sharing our laughter. Laughter is just as important to shedding the tears. The tears will come and we'll heal. And we're going to see better days. We're going to see good things that will come. Also in a story, I have a good friend that's on the West Coast. We met through what we call the clown ways because part of my medicine is the clown ways. And another friend has, I was at a gathering of Choctaws and he was there and he wanted me to speak to this reporter about this story she's doing on Choctaws and climate change. I said, no, I'm not talking to anyone. I'm working right now. No, you need to talk to her. Well, there is a story and you can look it up online, Choctaws versus climate change. Well, my friend on the West Coast pulls up the article on his computer and he reads the article. And I say in there, the earth is speaking. Man is not listening. So when he reads that article and he comes and he says, he sees that part, the earth is speaking, man is not listening. So he contacts me, tells me his story and how this information, he's mostly technical guy, all this information came through him one night and they showed him and taught him all this stuff and he researched all these things for 13 years and he wrote a book. And in the book, it's called If Earth Could Speak. You can find him on ifearthcouldspeak.org. Hope I can share that. Uh, the book is electronic, so we don't have to use up any more trees. And I wanted to share that part with him. And he and I are getting together at the end of this week to share some more things to hopefully look at documentaries that we want to do about this, about planting more trees, doing our part to help Mother Earth so that we all can live in a better way. We have a new film company we've started called Drumbeat Dream Studios here in Oklahoma. And we want to create some things. So if anyone is interested in being creative with us and help and find funding, find all these things, we're, we're, we're just starting. So it'd be great. 
You can also reach me at greyeagle.drumbeatdreams, dreams with a Z, at gmail.com. I would appreciate any feedback, any stories. Uh, again, these beautiful times, but challenging times we're all in. We continue to sing these songs so that Mother Earth hears us and all of you hear us so that we can walk again in this good way, a harmony way, a better way so that our children, our grandchildren, those generations to come have a good life, have a good way to live here. Again, from my heart, my home, my grandfather's place, indigenous country here, Oklahoma. I'm Great Eagle. And I'm thankful. I'm so honored and blessed to be asked to speak and to share with all of you. I hope you understood me and everything went well. Thank you so much, brother. Okay. Give a round of applause for Great Eagle, please. Make some noise for the indigenous indigenous communities around the world and, and thank you so much brother gray eagle for for sharing with us i'll see you soon in oklahoma for sundance there oh me all right all right guys thank you so much again um yeah let's wherever you're watching from i know we got people on the stream we got people watching around the world can we just really stop and kind of tune into what gray eagle was sharing i know that sometimes he can be soft-spoken, but I hope you really felt the, well, the weight of his words. You know, he's not going to be screaming at you and telling you this, but he's bringing something that's really important. And for me, I can say adding Gray Eagle, who's been my mentor and my Sundance chief for the last five years in Oklahoma. Me and Miriam are headed back to the U.S. after this event to go Sundance in June. And he, it's just been a really beautiful journey for me to reconnect to my family's indigenous roots, to try to learn more about where I come from. And it's, it's been a beautiful part of what we're doing. And I also think that when we're talking about a greater reset and pushing back against COVID-1984 and the Great Reset, but which as far as I'm concerned is just the next wave of colonization. They colonized the Europeans thousands of years ago. They colonized the Africans and the indigenous people of the Americas and around the world. And now it's coming for all of us, regardless of your skin color, your background, your ethnicity. And as far as I see it, they want to colonize our DNA. So it's important for us to look to our elders, at least to me, to look to our elders and to look to those who come before us. And when you hear me speak often of the seven generations, this is the man that put those those ideas in my head so i appreciate you guys giving him some time today thank you guys thank you uh we're gonna is is john ready i think we're gonna bring john on i want to mention unfortunately peggy hall didn't did not step into the room at her time so she didn't speak today and it seems like dolores cahill for one reason or another is not showing up today as well i know there's people who are on the stream and people here who are really excited to hear them we're going to see if maybe we can fit them in later in the busy week or you know do something because we did want to hear from dolores cahill all the way from ireland she's been doing the freedom airways and just fighting so hard in so many ways and Peggy Hall, the healthy American, some of you follow her work. She's doing plenty of great work. So we want to shout them out. They are on our websites. You can find out more about them. But unfortunately, they weren't able to uh, make it today. Um, yeah, and I know John's got a few things to say. I just want to plug. We have one of our sponsors here, right? Souls Enterprise with us in the house. You guys want to check them out right here. You want to come say a word real quick about your, you guys real quick? Yeah, since we – come on. We, we have some time. Um, 
to, to share right now. Like I said, we're, we're short on a couple speakers, but this is one of the, we're trying to get our camera on, but for those who can't see, I'm bringing up a very handsome gentleman to share a little bit about Souls Enterprise. You want to just tell everybody? Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Prasad. My partner, Karunadera, ran off to work. She'll be here all week. We were here in January. We fell in love with John and Derek, and we said we want to support any way we can the Greater Reset. So we're delighted to be sponsoring. Please come by and say hi. We haven't made our video yet, but one of our big shifts through the Greater Reset is we decided to launch Souls Enterprise, which is the spiritual component of the work we need to do here. So please come by and say hi to Prasad, and let's have a little soul conversation at some point. And Shout out to John and all the gang. Thank you for your work for The Greater Reset. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. And uh, we're for those of you who are in Ziwa, we're, we're trying to get our camera on. But I did want to show, as soon as Ramiro gets it on the screen, we actually have some watch parties. People are watching right now in New York and elsewhere. I'll show you guys. This is a pizza party watch party happening in Buffalo, New York. So people are enjoying the event all over the world, and we're really excited about that. Oh my goodness. Okay, yes. It is a global movement. We got folks here in Buda, aka Buda. We got folks in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Uh, super excited. I've heard from Chief Gray Eagle. And the thing that I guess I know where Derek gets it from now, this whole seven generations thing, I think is super critical to kind of put things in perspective because far too often we're just focused on this little narrow slither of time that we're on earth. But when you branch outward and you start thinking, how are my actions day to day going to affect the next seven generations? It really is like, wow, that's, that's a big deal. So we need to be thinking towards future generations. And of course, uh, the folks in the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum and all these secret society, shadow government types groups, they have big time plots, intergenerational, hundred year plans, and oftentimes uh, folks that care about freedom are just focused on like the election of the day or we got to defeat this piece of legislation. And I think one of the things that we're trying to convey with the greater reset is rather than criticizing and reacting, we need to criticize through creation and we need to start laying the foundation and the groundwork now. So not only my children and our children for the parents, children, 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 children's children, children. And their children, seven generations, uh, we can really change things. And it's all about going back to the roots as well, because the indigenous cultures were connected with one another spiritually and connected with the earth. And I think we've lost our way. So super honored to have uh, uh, Chief Gray Eagle present for us. Do we have any more pictures of the watch parties to share, guys? If so, that's great. You can always bring them in. Uh, through Telegram, we will still be taking your entries for the People's Reset Contest. So we very much would like to hear your stories. I think it's really cool to hear the guys at Seoul. They started that business uh, after the last Greater Reset. So it's all about activation. You can go to thegreaterreset.org and check out the People's Reset Contest. We're going to be giving away like $800 worth of Bitcoin cash which is a lot more Bitcoin cash than it was just a couple weeks ago because the price has gone down quite a bit. So share your story, upload it to Float or Odyssey. We very much would love to hear it. I also want to invite everyone to participate on Saturday. We're having a day full of workshops. Ramiro will be, will be presenting. Uh, Laney Liberty is going to present on shadows. 
We've had speakers today talk about trauma and healing inner child. She'll be hitting on some of that stuff. I'm going to be speaking on uh, manifestation through through the right mindset and through massive action. And we're also going to hear from Commander Dale Brown. He'll be here in person. He's with the Detroit Threat Management Center. He's going to talk about self-defense strategies and, and tips. So that's all taking place Saturday. For the folks here in Austin, you guys can attend in person or you can pay for the stream. You go to thegreaterreset.org and then click here on programs. And the folks that are watching online will be able to tune in for the stream there as well. Uh, before we go, I want to shout out another one of our sponsors, Bitcoin.com. Uh, Roger Ver and the crew over at Bitcoin.com have been super generous in supporting our work. So we're always grateful for their support. You can learn about cryptocurrency there. There's news. You can purchase cryptocurrency. You can go to local.bitcoin.com and purchase cryptocurrency without KYC. That means they don't know your identity. It's private. Pretty cool. Just whispered that to like thousands and thousands of people. Are we safer for whispering? Again, that's uh, Bitcoin.com. Shout out Roger Ver and and the crew. Okay, let me uh, just tease some of the stuff we have coming up. Tomorrow, the theme is Regenerate the Earth. So we're going to be hearing from a whole slew of speakers about regenerative agriculture. Again, this thing with the Great Reset, they position themselves as though they're concerned about sustainability right and the environment and the earth but the means to the end because we're concerned about the earth as well and we want to have harmonious relationship with the earth but they want to control people through it i think it's principles of permaculture and regenerative agriculture so we're going to hear from marjorie wildcraft christian westbrook Curtis Stone up in Canada is going to be joining us as well and a few other speakers. And then on Wednesday, it's all about the counter economy, economics, entrepreneurship, creating our own agoras, which is like an open air market. We have a little one right out here that you can check out some of the great stuff. Uh, So definitely check that out. On Thursday, we're going to be talking about technology. Hey, look at that guy. We know this guy. Oh, we can't hear you on the mic. On Thursday, we're going to hear about technology. Everyone's super excited to hear from the guys at Quartal, which is this amazing, incredible blockchain that's truly decentralized. Some of the other cryptocurrencies are getting a little centralized. This one aims to strike the root and uh, decentralize all the things. And then finally, we tie it all together with community. Like I said earlier at the onset of the evening, we're going to be hearing all sorts of ideas and strategies and tips and one thing that can make it a lot more easy to integrate And to expand, right, activation to expansion is linking up with your family, with your friends, with your community and working together, supporting one another, holding each other up, sharing ideas, becoming accountability partners for everyone. Hey, look at this great Greater Reset watch party. Got the next generation right there and the dog. These happy, beautiful people. What are they eating? Coffee beans down there? Dang, they're all fired up. Derek, are you with us? Can we hear you? All right, we had a few speakers, a couple speakers today that uh, we weren't able to. There he is. It's all you, brother. Okay, all right. Okay, folks, again, we got four more days. This was the first day. We're so grateful to have you guys in the global audience here in person in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. There's plenty more to come, so please share the stream with your friends at thegreaterreset.org and stick around. There's more coming later this week. Thank you so much. (laughs) 